All right, y'all, it's spring, and you know what that means. It's time to start planning our summer festival traveling. Yep, it's time to get into my Airbnb bag cross-country, a.k.a. uh, time to visit my homes all across the country. And you know what I never think about? Why not list my own spot on Airbnb and host some folks at my house? I mean, my house is cute. Yes, let's make money while we're spending money. Just trying to help you out, man, because your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Questlove Supreme is a production of iHeartRadio. You guys been at 30 Rock all along, right? For, for a while. Yeah, now. pretty much. Yeah, pretty much. That's, that's pretty cool. Yeah, we made it through the storm. I can't believe it. You know, it's like uh, everybody, has, everybody has a story for the last year. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Fonte, you the year. You ready? Yeah, I, oh, I thought I hit start video. My bad. Okay. All right, what's up, y'all? What's up, everybody? What's up, what's mate? Up? Good, bro. What's up? What's up? All right. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of Questlove Supreme. I'm your host, Questo. Um, we have Team Supreme with us right now. Um, <laughs> Why? Well, I, I can't assign myself a, another uh, moniker. You, you can. Uh, it just took you a second. I wasn't sure if you knew. I'm glad I forgot you... who I was because, I you know, it. whenever we're in the presence of greatness, I just, you know. I understand. My my thinking yep. just just goes the, the other way. This dude has played on every record ever. <laughs> yeah, literally. <laughs> like, dude, seriously. I, <laughs> I wish... I truly wish we had um, like James Brown's intro, just so I can just <laughs> right, right. <laughs> start naming it. Like literally, I don't, dude. Tears in heaven. Get lucky. Uh, uh, foot loose. Saving all my love for you. Uh, I just can't stop loving you. Uh, oh, oh, morning. Al, Al Jarreau, morning. Morning, Al Jarreau, uh, yeah. Steve, Steve's about to have a, a, a fit. Say it. Say it. Find out all this stuff. <laughs> Easy lovers. Oh, there you go. Yes. There you go. <laughs> Through the fire. I mean, even even underground classics like Smooth Sailing by the Isley mm-hmm. Brothers give me the best I got. Freaking, who has any work with? Tina Marie, Dionne Warwick, Aretha, uh, Joe Withers. All in one namers. LN, like whoever. Like Eric Clapton, The Weeknd, Justin yes. Timberlake, B.B. Uh, King, Mary J. Blige. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> the most used session musician of all. Wait, are, I'm, I'm kind of saying this in jest, but... Nathan East, are you the most used session musician of all time? You know what, Amir? I'm I'm not exactly sure how to uh, verify that, but we can say that I've been busy. (laughs) Booked and busy. Ladies and gentlemen. I love it. A great Philadelphian is on the show. Welcome, Mr. Nathan East, to Questlove Supreme. It is a pleasure, a joy, and an honor to be here. I mean, you've had... 
everybody from Michelle Obama to the Dalai Lama. No. <laughs> <laughs> nah, We're working and, on him. We're working on the Dalai Lama. Right. <laughs> and now Nathan East. Um, yeah, how 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 are you right now? Where where are you? Okay, uh, I know that we can't see you because this is an audio show, but um, I should say that uh, in the land of Zoom, when you're watching like news pundits mm-hmm. uh, sit behind their library collection with all their impressive <laughs> books, nah, Nathan East is stunting like a, I'm certain that all those guitars and basses hanging on your wall have a story to tell, correct? You know, they, they really do. There was uh, There's the one that was on some of those early Barry White records. That was like the, the white P bass in the background is, is my like. That's your, your, Barry White was your first client as a professional bass player? Yes, yes. Um, late Wow. Um, Jesus Christ, let's start. <laughs> <laughs> um, this is the thing, like I'd, I've known you for the longest and of course, like, you know, you've come to the Tonight Show and you've sat in and all that stuff. I still can't wrap my head around the fact that you're a Philadelphian. Like Aye. what is your... And at that, like, I'm really elated to speak to someone. Usually all the music, musical luminaries from Philadelphia that I talk to are, are kind of from a certain, like my dad's uh, range, like born in the late 30s, early 40s, and really can't give me a lay of the land of what Philly was like to grow up in Philly as as a youngster in the 70s when all this magic was happening. But what what is your Philadelphia story? Where in Philly were you born? Well, actually, North Philly, Doctors Hospital, um, roughly sixty five years ago, and uh, okay. my my folks. Whoa, 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 what? That's some lotion. That's some Yo, lotion. Wait. Are we supposed to give away those things? Right. <laughs> you, <laughs> yeah, when you, you look like that, you are actually you drop the skincare. Like... Drop the skincare routine, Nathan. Yeah. <laughs> I need a skincare regimen. That's a retinol, at least at night. I don't know. Oh, no. Even as you said that, I was like, oh, yeah, he, he might be like five years older than me. Born in. Uh, wow. Yeah. You, you know, 1966. 1955, you know, and, and you know, wow, uh, bro. My, my dad went to Cheney, Cheney State in uh, Cheney, Pennsylvania. He had the world's record in the 50 and 100 yard dash. And wow. He beat Jesse Owens in 1940. Um, made the Olympics, but the, due to the war, the Olympics were canceled, so I didn't have that bragging right. But uh, he was the world's fastest human. My wow. daughter is now keeping keeping it going. She runs track for UC Berkeley on their uh, D1 Pac-12 track team there in uh, Texas A&M right. uh, this weekend, you know, for the for the regional finals. So, you know, it, it, there's a lot. But, but Philly, I left uh, early... Uh, when he had an uh, aerodynamics aviation job in uh, Convair in San Diego, uh, where he moved the family. But we would go back to Philly every summer and kind of just jam. And, and I had a lot of great musical influences. And, and I don't know what's in the water, but there's like so many bass players. Anthony Jackson and yeah. you know, Eddie Henderson. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like, what? It's bass heaven over there, you know? So w- was your family immersed in music as well or just... Like how how what was your first musical memory that you had? Yeah, there was there was always a piano kind of around the house that uh, uh, pops and moms both would play, but um, you know it was like you know music music filled the neighborhood and and you know so you'd, you'd hear Gladys Knight and Marvin Gaye out you know blasting through the homes of this of the neighborhood, but it was really uh, I'll never forget my my first forty five was uh, More Love by Smokey Robinson. 
we were just always gathered around the radio and, and listening to music. And uh, I remember um, when I, I played cello for three years and then I discovered the bass and it was, uh, it was actually in church. My brothers and I were doing, the, they were doing like these uh, folk masses back in the day when all that started. And, uh, and then there was a bass on the altar and I went up, picked it up and um, nobody claimed it. And I, I, I picked it up and I said, oh Lord. <laughs> so you, you you taught yourself how to play yeah i mean i just started playing just just out of my love for for music and it, it only had four strings so it wasn't wasn't that difficult but you played the cello before but i played the cello before anyway okay. so i was okay. i was in the range of the bass clef so that that, that kind of got me um got me going okay this is interesting because usually um anyone that we interview on the show uh that's an axeman or an axe woman um, nine times out of ten, there's like a uh, the the thirty dollar Sears guitar thing story that happens, like <laughs> with Sears having these affordable instruments and you know people teaching their getting their kids lessons and whatnot. But you started on the cello and then worked your way to the bass, right? And the, well, there is the thirty actually forty nine dollar story story from the, from the pawn shop where. My mom got me my first bass was, was about that long, you know, it was, it was a, you know, short scale, no name, but, um, you know, that, that was my, uh, you know, ticket to, ticket to everything, you know, and, and I started playing in all the bands and, uh, uh, stage band in high school and, okay. you, know, you, uh, you know, the drill, one thing leads to another, next thing you know, you're doing a couple gigs. I learned, I learned the A string the E string, and then I had a gig already. <laughs> oh, okay. Just, <laughs> I see. You know, and, and the first gigs we were in church, and, and obviously, um, you know, I always say that's the best place to have your first gigs because uh, if you make a mistake, they're very forgiving, you know, and you, you don't get a, <laughs> you don't get they held don't, to account. They don't give you the eye. <laughs> I see. Do you remember, um, well, at, at the time when you're learning your craft, were there any other notable musicians that you grew up with or or artists that you were kind of hanging with during your your formative years as a teen or yeah you know well, as a teen we um it's funny because we backed up we had a band called power and there was a stacks review that rufus thomas barry white a bunch of people came and played and we were the house band for everybody and after that gig barry white invited us all to his office up in beverly hills we went up there and he hired our whole band on the spot to go tour with him. And um, so our like our, my first gig was at the Apollo Theater. Um, then we did Madison Square Garden. We did Cobo Arena in Detroit. You know, I'm like 16 years old. Wait, what year was this? <laughs> this was like, a, let's see, 71, maybe. <laughs> okay. So yeah. at the very beginning of Barry White's career. Yeah, 70, 71 too. And he... He started, you know, he had all these hits and. Uh, Were you lying about your age? Like to anybody? <laughs> well, you know, I didn't volunteer my age. <laughs> very uh. much, it was just one of those things where, you know, you're saying opportunity knocks, you got to go, you know. And how do you propose this to your parents? How did that conversation? Well, that was another thing that they were, you know, how parents are They're They're always a little reluctant about that, but they, they went along to it because I, I was with my brothers, you know, my, and and all my my homies from the neighborhood, so we were all together in this, and um, it was it was really special to to be with an act like that, you know, an, an arena act, 
where you're, uh, you know, selling out arenas. And it, it was unbelievable. So did you ever do the, the Philadelphia circuit that would have maybe eventually landed you in MFSB? Or was that already Anthony's gig? And Yeah, that was that was already done and dusted. And that would have been been his gig. And I would have been already out on the West Coast by then. But um, those those were the you know, those were the dream gigs that everybody wanted, you know, gambling huff and and uh, those tombs are very near and dear to my heart. But by that time, uh, we were out on the West Coast. And then so so Barry was kind of he was kind of it. And and then, you know, I re- I played with him live before I, before I started recording. But then, you know, started doing all those records and and um, he would, you know, most people don't know. He'd, he'd drive up from, from Watts in a Stutz Bearcat with gold <laughs> emblems on it. And then he'd get out with the 357 Magnum. You know, twirling it like we, like he's in, the, like he's in a country western movie, <laughs> and it would sit on the console. You know, like this thing. No like special occasion. This is what he do. No special. <laughs> I wanted, I wanted to ask you. So you're, you're the, you're the third uh, guest of the show that's had Barry White interactions, but I've heard, you know, through throughout my coming up in the industry, like some gangster Barry stories, but. <laughs> can't ever get like what was he like to deal deal with uh ray parker jr told the story of like you know he accidentally crashed uh barry white's uh mercedes trying to play him the demo for uh one of those songs on let the music play and then um his former uh, tour manager alan leeds uh had a few stories about you know barry's whole uh uh uh, modus operandi and you know i knew of the gun always there (laughs) Like in general, was he? I don't want to say Suge Knightish. Like, was he fearsome, or was he cool to get along with? Or you know, you know in general, he was he was very cool. We we had a we had an amazing relationship, and he was just always he was always very supportive. I mean, especially if he liked you. You know, he was uh, one of those guys that that um, you know, if if he liked you, and then. You know, Gene Page was the arranger for all those sessions and, you know, the great Gene Page. And, and so there was always just when, when it was happening, it was it was incredible. Like, you know, Barry was just he loved the fact. And, you know, we, we were making some some hits in there. So, I mean, he was he was gracious and appreciative. We wrote a couple of things together. I, I had a song on the Love Unlimited's album called Easing. OK. And um, we, you know, he would always end up with his name on everything. <laughs> you know the write a word get a third concept <laughs> right exactly the side note does anyone ever remember the bridge to jay-z's uh new york new york song do you remember it new oh york, yeah new york which one exactly exactly <laughs> right, it's jay-z's new york song do you remember the bridge the, to that do you remember the bridge? Of new york state of mind yeah. yes concrete oh do you remember the bridge no the Exactly. No. So, you know, I I teased all the time that, oh, okay, because when Jay won the Grammy for that, Alicia won too, and right. I was trying to figure out what the <laughs> what the what thing was, the, was what, and what it was, was like the, the, she insisted on adding that bridge so that she too can get right as credit yeah. for it. Uh, I never <laughs> knew if that song had a bridge. I knew the hook. I exactly. Know the exactly. There's <laughs> but, a bridge. With how I go, I mean, there's you know, a bridge in it. But now, conversely, the bridge to "Don't Got Don't Stop Till You Get Enough," which was written by Greg Fillinganes. Greg Fillinganes, yes. 
Now that's the, we you know, know, we know that story. And, and conversely, <laughs> now that was something that, that was worthy of, at mm-hmm. least, you know, what, 25%? <laughs> so it happens, it goes down. Um, if, with those sessions, Ray told us that um, Barry tracked everything at the same time with multiple, I mean, at least for Ray, you know, he would say like sometimes it'd be two, sometimes four guitars playing at the same time Absolutely. and that he didn't do a lot of post mixing and none of that no. stuff like so i'm just trying to figure out the the one question i never got to ask him about that in doing it is if barry doesn't do any post mixing once the song is cut how long do you guys have to play a song in the studio before the engineer captures the right eq the right compression the right sound like someone has to play over and over again while they're like, okay, getting levels. Right. While you're, while you're playing over and over again and you're learning the tune and Barry's giving everybody a part, like if you're looking in the studio, literally there's three guitars. There's, there's Ray Parker, there's Wawa, you know, it could be Lee Rittenauer. Or sometimes uh, Dean Parks. Yeah. Dean Parks. I mean, uh, David T. And um, so you, you'd have those guys. Uh, he had uh, a, like a touring band at the time. And they were not really known. So uh, uh, his name was Willie Seastra, um, but another bass player, because he, he was on there. <laughs> the thing I remember about is he was always so nervous. He was sweating from the palms of his hand, you know, because when Mary came around you, there was a force to be reckoned with, you know, and he'd start singing a part to you. And I'd, okay, you play, bow, 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 you know, and, and so... Right. He would, he would, uh, so literally you got a room full of musicians, Barry, there was a Rhodes in the middle of the room. Gene was in there. Ed Green was over on drums. And then he'd, he'd go around and sing the part to every guy. And, and you would literally start to hear a hit being just developed just right before your very eyes. And pretty soon you're playing this thing like, like for hours. And next thing you know, once you add all those parts and bits and pieces, you know, they're, they hit record. So Barry White didn't read or write music. No, no, he, he wouldn't. If you said, if you said, "Here's play me middle C," he wouldn't. He would not know where to go. <laughs> really, <Wow>. really. <laughs> as many times as I thought, you know, C with the piano and all that stuff. Even figured. though he's he was the maestro, you know, but but I mean, he, but at the same time, he knew, you know, that's that's what I love about music anyway, because you don't really have to, you know, be schooled for those notes to come out, you know, and we. We all have the same 12 notes, like Quincy says, you know, we, mm-hmm. we've had the same 12 notes for Bach. to work with. So um, are, are you on the, do you know the 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 uh, the stretch of the, the Barry White discography that you were on at the time? Or Yeah, the, I think one of the first ones that I was on was called The Message is Love. And it had um, Just the Way You Are on okay. there and a bunch of those tunes uh, I had. Uh, you know, there was a, whichever album had ecstasy when you lay down next to me. Um, we oh, did just all casually those. that that baseline. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and 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 those, you know, that was my first kind of heartbreak in the business because you know when when you're in the studio every day all day and then you get that album and you crack it open and you you look for your name and it's not there. It was like produced by Barry White, written by Barry White, album uh. concept by Barry White, all songs. And no musicians. And I said, what's, what's up with this? Oh, he doesn't want anybody to steal his sound, you know. 
So you were surprised. You didn't know ahead of time that your, your name ain't going to be on it. I had, your name is not going to be on the record. <laughs> so wow. I was like, really, guys? See, that's why I always thought that, like, Rhythm Arranger and all those other, like, made-up credits is, is for, you know... <laughs> We won't give you writer's credit or production credit, but we'll we'll just say that you did rhythm arrangement or right, you know, just a, another uh, auxiliary credit. I mean, love um, theme was a was a gene arrangement to a song, and the arrangement was so bad that it, it was so powerful that they took the lyrics off the song and they didn't even finish the tune. <laughs> you know? Exactly, and that was on I, ABC Wide World of Sports every Saturday. I mean, it was like <laughs> watching the guy fall down. <laughs> Yeah. Wow. No, I, I remember it. How how does one I'm not saying I'm not asking like how does one stay territorial, but okay, so you're Barry's go to guy. In your mind, if you don't say how high when he says jump in terms of like, all right, we got a session next week, can you make it? Da-da-da-da. Can you make it? Who are you worried about that's right around the corner that might take your gig? Like were you territorial, like, okay, I got Barry White. Now, do you start sifting for other people so you can go higher and keep Barry White? Or because I'm I'm trying to figure out like if you're in LA and you're competing against like Chuck Rainey and Lewis Johnson and all those things, I know that mainly producers have their main guy that they always stick with. Right. But you seem to be the main guy that everyone always sticks with. So how do you how do you mark your territory to make sure that the next guy behind you doesn't take it in case you get sick one day or well, while, while still being a teenager? <laughs> well, the, the only way to really mark your territory is, is what you leave on on the tape, you know, mm-hmm. in the I studio. Mean, yeah. The notes you play are your marketing. Uh, and and uh, like Quincy used to always say, if you to get the call is one thing to get the call back is a uh, is the other part of the equation that like. And and I, and I never really was too territorial. I was I was always just so appreciative because I said, man, with all these bad cats in this town, Lewis Johnson and Abe Laboria, I mean, just I mean, a, a, an A list of of players. So mm. whenever I kind of got a gig, I was just going, oh man, I'd, either they weren't available, or <laughs> you know, just <laughs> just bring your bring your A game, you know. So that for me, it was just like just just leave it. You know, leave leave your mark on the on the tape. All right. So I want to ask this, hypothetically speaking. All right. Let's say Ed Green does not exist, and it's 1974, and I'm Barry White's studio drummer. How much am I getting paid? How how do I get paid? Uh, is it are you getting paid by the hour? Is it by the song, or just by the session? Those sessions usually had a contractor. Um, and as we all know, there's a lot of politics in this, you know, but the contractor was the, he was actually the one getting paid. <laughs> and so he was like on double scale. And then because he was, he would put himself as the leader. Okay. So you had to be AFM? You had to be AFM, yeah. And, and then, so there were two sessions okay. a day. There was, there was okay. 10 to one, two to five, basically. So... I see. So there was always someone there to make sure the musicians got paid. Yeah. So it wasn't like Barry was just like reaching in his pocket, like, all right, here's forty five dollars. No, you didn't, like, you, didn't, you didn't get an envelope. <laughs> it was, it was all, it was all very um, unionized, and um, and people like Gene Page was there. He he was there to make sure that happened too. You know, so you you got paid. You know, and then back in the day, everybody would show up to the union, 
and you'd have a stack of checks waiting for you. Right. And that was by the way, are you on are you on Gene Page's uh, Love Look record? Love Look. Um, it came out in Atlantic uh, 75, 1975. You know, in all honesty, I'd have to look. <laughs> okay, of course. This over two, two I'm thinking days. no, because it, I wouldn't forget that, you know. Okay. But there's, you know, when when there's been quite a few, you know, they start to, <laughs> they start to blend they together. Blurry. It's hard to keep track. Yeah. yeah. Right. I always kind of go to allmusic.com when I'm, whenever I want to. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> or even they forget stuff too. Yeah, even they, so. yeah exactly. So what, what was your next pivot after Barry White? Like, who was Barry, your next? I, and I can remember when I had to, because I started getting calls from Hubert Laws and, and, and Ronnie Laws and some of the guys in the, sort of in the mm. jazz idiom. Mm-hmm. And, and I can remember having a, a call where it landed on the same day as Barry. And uh, I can remember asking him, because theoretically, the way you go from single scale to double is if you have so much work that you, that you have to charge double in order to keep so so you could say no to somebody else you know so oh, okay i can remember going to barry and asking uh and i i said man i what should i do and the guy said well if you ask him it's been nice knowing you you know <laughs> they, were, they were just like giving me their blessings but i i pulled them aside and and i got up the guts and i said i, I was just wondering if i could just ask for double scale because i'm getting some other offers and and if i say no to you you know then it'll help me say no to them if I get double here. So uh, he he looked at me. I saw the three fifty seven sitting there on the on the console. <laughs> wow! And he put a, he, he put his arm <laughs> he put his arm around me. He said, "Nate, if you want that, you got that." I mean, he gave me a big smile, and it was like, "Of course." <laughs> <laughs> I mean, these are the moments in music that like people don't know about, you know. But you stay. So that was the that was the first time, and then 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 I was like a double scale cat, you know, which was cool, you know. That's what's up. Yo, what's up? This is Fonte Fontigolo from Team Supreme. Black representation in media is very important to me. I think it's important to have our stories told by people who look like us and who have shared in our common experiences. Some of my earliest influences were Donnie Simpson. I would also say Tom Joyner, Angela Stribling, uh, Sherry Carter. They were just people who told our stories with a lot of class and dignity and were big inspirations to me. The next generation of influential black voices can be found on NPR's new collection, Black Stories, Black Truths. Black Stories, Black Truths is a celebration of blackness from NPR. Each of NPR's black voices are as distinct, varied, and nuanced as the black experience itself. In the Black Stories, Black Truths collection, you'll hear stories of joy, resilience, empowerment, and creating world-shifting things out of struggle. Every episode is a living account about what it means to be black today, told from a unique black perspective. From Bobby Schmurder to The Wire, Michelle Obama to Reparations, there's no limit to the range of black stories, black truths. Black perspectives haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story. Now, they are the story. In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the Black experience. Hear a feed of episodes from across NPR's podcast, The Center Black Voices. It's NPR Noir. Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR, wherever you get podcasts. All right, y'all. You know what season it is. Tis the season for spring breaking and planning our summer travel. And if you're like me, you're already in your Airbnb app 
trying to find which spot is right for you. Now, listen, while I'm looking to spend all this money, what I'm not doing is thinking about making money with Airbnb. See, you got to change your mind state. Make the money while you're spending the money. How, you say, Laia, do I make the money? Well, you host at your house. And I know what you're thinking. I mean, my whole house? Uh, Well, no, you don't have to do your whole house. I mean, you could do a room or, you know, do the whole house. So make some money while you're spending some money this summer. I'm trying to tell you, your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash host. In the 1980s, Frank Farian was riding high as a successful German music producer, but he was bored. German pop was formulaic, dull, and oh so white. Frank had bigger dreams, American dreams. He wanted to create the kind of music that would rival larger-than-life artists like Michael Jackson or Run DMC. So he assembled a hip-hop duo, two once-in-a-lifetime talents who were charismatic, full of sex appeal, and phenomenal dancers. The only problem? One very important element was missing, but Frank knew just how to fix that. Wondery's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's biggest controversies. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when their adoring fans learned about the infamous lip syncing, their downfall was swift and brutal. With exclusive interviews from frontman Fab Morvan and his producers Frank Farian and Ingrid Segui, this podcast takes a fresh look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Follow Blame It on the Fame wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free by joining Wondery+. Plus. All right, so are you on any of the Ronnie Law stuff or? Oh, yeah. Uh, I want to know if you're on the Pressure Sensitive album, but that's with. Uh, that's the, that's the, uh, the what you call it, sample. Uh, yeah, well, Tidal Wave is the song Tidal that Wave, we care yeah. about. But like, yeah, I always, think. Always there. Oh, always, always there. there yeah. That's uh, with, uh, that's on Friends and Strangers, correct? That's on Friends and Strangers, yeah. Okay, and, uh, I see. Again, I'd have to look because it's it's. It's enough decades. It's it's longer than four decades ago, so I'd have to look. <laughs> quite all right, quite all right. When you are booked uh, for a session, do you at least get the courtesy of hearing the song first to see if this is something you might be into, or you just kind of jump into it and not know what it's going to wind up being? Yeah, no, no, no courtesy of of the song. It's 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 you get there and it's baptism by. <laughs> Really? By demo or fire. <laughs> wow. And you, so you had to learn these songs on the spot? On the spot, yeah. Wait a minute, Amir. Let me ask Nathan this. What kind of music did you want to make? <laughs> like, when you started out, what, like, what was the dream? Oh, yeah. No, the dream was, was all these guys. I, I remember reading an art, article um, that Shaka Khan was talking about. She said, Anthony Jackson is my favorite bass player because he, he, he laid down the gauntlet on all those records. You know, it was the mm-hmm. Bible of bass, you know, what he played. And I studied it. Um, but when I read that article, I thought, oh, man, I would like to be everybody's favorite bass player. Like, that was my uh, dream. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Damn, you live in the dream? That's cool. And, and I'm, I'm still living the dream. I mean, you couldn't, you couldn't make it up, you know, once it started hitting. And January, I remember January 2nd, 1980, I did a Hertz Rent-A-Car jingle commercial. Gene Page was a composer. Um, James Gadsden was on drums. Oh, Ray boy. Parker and Lee Rittenauer were on guitar. Sonny Burke at the Wow. Key. I mean, I'm up there the writing in my diary, all these guys, you know. And 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 I worked every day since then because then it was kind of like once these guys hear you, they start going telling people about you. And, and it was just like stepping stones. And, uh, and it was crazy that way. You know? And that's your tribe. So that's even crazier. Exactly. <laughs> So for the musicians 
that listen to this podcast. And I'm going to try and ask this in a way so it doesn't alienate <laughs> or offend them. Uh, Fonte oh, already knows where I go. Come on <laughs> you now, already know where I'm going. No, Let's but go. I think this I think this is important and you know, this is this is a battle I always work with because we live in we live in a time now where musicianship is just in the wild wild west. Um and again, and I've talked about gospel chops for a long time where like the gospel chop community sort of sigh I mean like, yo, man, why are you always coming down on us and playing on? But <laughs> and, you know, I don't know if the rules that apply then apply now. Now, I'm just I'm a, I, I come from a place where, you know, the, the musicianship of the 60s, 70s and some of the 80s, you know, that's my bread and butter because, you know, it's it's. You know, it's undeniably classic. However, you know, there's a new generation that sort of feels like the need to go from one from zero to 60 in four seconds and kind of show you everything, you know, they have. But it's it's almost like, in your opinion, where do you feel that that script got lost in? Or is this just a natural evolution? And now we just live in a time where you got to do everything but the kitchen sink to impress and keep your job right whereas well, you know all the time i tell musicians like dude just play you know in the beginning i used to take their music their stuff away and just like play this one thing and this one thing only but right. like does someone have to tell you that like what what's i guess what i'm asking is what stopped you from trying to showboat to let people know like i'm the shit and just do what's called for and that's it yeah you know it's it's very seductive to to want to yeah, and certain instruments, I think, like like piano, like this this like crazy Olympic fast chops, you know, they it kind of lends itself to to people wanting to really. But but I never wanted somebody to walk away from a gig saying, "Well, he was the fastest guy I ever <laughs> ever heard." <you> know? <laughs> right, right. What what I actually like to do now is I go down the uh, Instagram feed with the sound off, you know. So and then you know you see everybody playing and. And you try to figure out who's playing something that's worth listening. And very rarely do I, <laughs> you when when I turn it wow. on, you know, is, is it like very few notes. But I, I learned early on too, just play the play the groove and the ink and the and and let it, you know, play that funk. <laughs> does that? <laughs> you know? But does that truly matter? And like, I think all of us in this room right now like agree with you. But then it's also like, does that matter anymore? Does it truly matter? Yeah, I, I think it will always matter. Um, and the only thing that I base that on is that I'm still, I'm still fairly busy, like, like, like okay. really, really busy. <laughs> you know where I feel you. I every day it. there's something to do after, after we, we finish here. I'm running the studio, and uh, I got about four songs waiting. Um, so to me, it's the same concept of, and I remember when Barry said, when, when the Lynn drum machine came, he said, it's over for drummers, you know? And, and so like, it can't be over for drummers that can play, you know, because this is a machine and it will not come up with something that God put in its head <laughs> by mm -hmm. itself, you know? Facts. And so I, I think that regard and it, but it's tempting. It's seductive when you hear machine, um, to think that that's going to be the way of the world, but when it when it gets right down to it, um, just like you, you know, you, you play every day of your life, and and that's what you do, you know, and that's what people, that's what I think the the 
the humans want to hear, you know, they, they don't necessarily want to hear a machine. And, and I don't think they want to hear a, a person playing like a machine. But isn't that in that proof and like certain new artists putting like they still have to dip back like Bruno Mars still got to dip back like Anderson Pack yes. still got to dip back. Like there's just a, there, there are some artists that see I'm going to need this if I'm going to be funky. And, and when they dip back, everybody. Oh, man, have you heard this? This is the most amazing thing I ever heard. Exactly. <laughs> like it's new. Y'all remember Childish Gambino? I'm playing Donald. I'm, I'm, I'm playing. I'm playing. Yeah. For you, though, uh, what personally, what do you prefer? Do you prefer studio rats or do you prefer like being a road dog? Which is a great question, you know, because mm-hmm. some people are either either or I've I've enjoyed being both, you know. I've, been, mm-hmm. I've enjoyed my life on the road. Uh, it comes with experiences and and uh, something that, you know, when it's live, there's nothing like that, you know, especially if you're playing, you know, we, we did Live Aid, 250,000 people in Philly, you know. Mm-hmm. There's, no, there's no feeling like that, you know, and to, to look out and see that. Um, but then there's nothing else like being in the studio and hearing your instrument just like being recorded pristinely by one of the top engineers. And then when you hear that playback, it just sounds like heaven, you know. And mm-hmm. and so those are those are the two kind of sides of the coin of, of a music of a musician, you know. And and I think it's important to have both of those qualities. How did uh, COVID change, uh, you, uh, you know, the, your workflow in terms of, you know, how did you have to shift once the pandemic hit? Yeah, you know, the um, I watched um, and, and I had some very significant touring set up you know eric clapton had three months in the summer and we were going to do like six royal albert hall shows and then go to europe and we had well, we all know. that planning and then we've i had his, a, we've seen his tweets <laughs> i'm playing i'm playing <laughs> I had a, I, no, don't say that <laughs> go ahead go ahead, go ahead. I, had a, I had a a russian tour you know lined up uh, and uh playing with this russian orchestra so i was looking forward to that and so i watched I watched like literally the revenue for the whole year that would have tightened me up, go right out the window, you know? Mm-hmm. And uh, when, when, when COVID hit, it's like, you are instantly becoming an entrepreneur now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you, can, you got some merchandise. Let's talk about it. <laughs> you, get, <laughs> you get to see how to deal with plan B, you know, and then what you're going to do, whether that's, whether that's Uber driving or which, which I have some friends that had to hit, you know, or, or coming up with a way, you know, never let a good pandemic go to waste you know so or your voice work because like when you said that i was like yeah you are a voice actor duh duh i hear it and you that's what you do i was blessed i did some voiceover work and and since i have a studio um it really came in handy because people send me songs and and files and and so i could i could do that till four in the morning i end up doing a lot (laughs) Have, have you written a book you know what i have a book in the works and um Definitely, there's some there's some fun stories. So uh, that's that's in the works at the moment. No, I was just gonna say you could probably just list all the albums you played on, and that would be the whole book. <laughs> <laughs> right, for real. It could be. Have you have you had a session that you were kind of not satisfied with your performance, and you're shocked that like, oh, I got away with that, or that sort of thing, or, or... you know, it's funny. It because are you allowed? Record. Are you allowed to like? I'm certain that you're being hired because it's like, okay, Nathan will be, you know, Nathan will knock this out in one or two takes. Won't be that hard. Let's go through it. Or, you know, have you had a moment where you felt like, eh, 
I could have did better. And they were like, no, no, I'm fine with that. It's good. And then the song blows you, up. You know, what's or, funny is every everything that I ever hear back, I always think I always hear something that I, I say, oh, man, if I did it again, I would have I would have made that a little hipper odd or just put a little something extra on that note or something. I mean, everything I hear that I do, I always feel like there's there's room for uh, for some kind of improvement. But however, you know, when the guys um, like when when Daft Punk, they, they did get lucky and they were mixing the bass part. And, and I, I actually had a chance to redo that because we recorded the track and then they sent it back and then Niall put his guitar on. Mm-hmm. And when Niall put the guitar on, that's where the funk just like it just it just pulled the funk out of the thing. So I, I asked the guys, I said, you know, if, if I could have another shot at the bass. And I, I kind of went for my Bernard Edwards impersonation. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <Nice>. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and I was actually happy because they they edited everything to the to the T. But they said, hey, your bass bar, we we ended up just using most of the one one same take, one whole take. Oh, cool. Wow. Which was cool. And, and um, you know, it was fun. To, now, that was a fun one to hear. And and my kids thought I was cool because <laughs> I played. on <laughs> Right. A question. Um, OK, so. I, I guess um, for most bass players, especially bass players that are, are coming of sort of coming of age um, in the 70s, you being born in 55, you, you would have been uh, uh, 15 years old in 1970. And I'm, I'm certain by this point you were playing. Yeah, you were you were a fully realized bass player by 1970, correct? Yeah, I think I I was I was like like just jumping getting in into uh the realization. Okay. So that said, can you describe to me what your what the reaction or what the feeling was when you first heard Thank You for Let Me Be Myself Again? Because I, okay, so I have this thing with uh Christian McBride about my disdain for songs in E minor because <laughs> <laughs> like I, 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 I have an obsession with collecting really horrible funk songs in E minor because you know it's like when you're playing E minor that that's the easiest key for a beginner and bass to play, right. and of course my thought is that you're trying to top the Mount Rushmore of E minor, which is basically. <laughs> Thank you for letting me be myself that's, again. Is it play that funky music? Is, is that well, yeah, that's in there? But no, that's I, I wouldn't even consider that the the Mount Rushmore. I mean, I would. Oh consider, no, it's definitely not Mount Rushmore. I was just trying to think. Was that the same? Key yeah, yeah. All was, songs in the key of E. So thank you for letting me be myself. Uh, Shining star could be in there. Shining star hair. Um, I I I would think. Well, it's kind of weird because I don't know if I can let Larry in twice. I mean, he he's already the the alpha. So <laughs> anything that comes after thank you for letting me be myself, no matter what right. song it is, release yourself, hair, standing or on any shaky of those ground. Things. Right, all those things. So but for you though, did you have a like come to Jesus moment when you heard that? Like what did you make of the sound? Because I, I always wanted to ask a bass player that was of age <laughs> who knew what bass playing was beforehand, which I'm certain that, you know, James Jamerson was the leader of that. Yeah. But what was thank you for letting me be myself? for you in terms of hearing that? I mean, I, I'd have to say that was that was one of the the wheels. <laughs> you know mm. what I mean? It was like, um, and, and I can remember the guys in my band, you know, just said, man, have, 
have you heard uh, this cat, Larry Graham, you know? And so they came in with Graham Central Station and they came in with that. And like you're listening and you're just going, I mean, to be that innovative at that time period where there wasn't too much before that, that, that said that much, you know? And, and I love those YouTubes now where you can see Sly in the studio listening to, listening to those tracks, you know, just going, wow, this is crazy, you know? Mm-hmm. And so it was, it was a, it was a big revelation. I mean, I'm, I'm not going to lie. And, and E minor, I mean, you know, as a bass player, it's always funk and E, you know, everybody, Lewis mm-hmm. Johnson, <laughs> he's just all down. It's just <laughs> funk and E, you know, I get, I get asked to judge these uh, battle of the bass, bass contest sometimes. Oh and, no. And you, and you know, <laughs> oh, no. I think you'd almost say I'd rather have a root canal. <laughs> oh God, no. <laughs> I mean, I walk out of there and everybody comes, walks in the room with their thumb out and, and you know, they don't, they don't check the tuning, they don't check the volume, they just start whacking the bass, you know, and it's like funk and E and it's like, please guys. <laughs> yeah, it's like, how many ways can they reinvent the wheel? So, <laughs> but for you, it's, okay, well, I mean, is there still challenges that have yet to be discovered or or in just in terms of the sport of bass playing well if you if you think about bass lines like um for the love of money when anthony jackson walked in and saw d minor on the paper and he came up with that bass line you know right and 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 then when you think about till you come back to me um chuck rainey you know these these are to me where the bass really caresses the song you know and and if there's one thing that I that I would tell, and I have students at my online school of bass, and I say, make every single note count. Don't don't just go in there and start playing. You first you have to listen and know what the song is all about, you know. And 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 we're just part of a big picture. So you know, when everybody goes in whacking and smacking the bass, it's like, really, guys, you know. And and I remember Anthony <laughs> Jackson used to say. Uh, if you if you want slapping and popping, you got to call Marcus. <laughs> you know, and then he said yeah. he said that cost me two hundred fifty grand a year. <laughs> but he wouldn't. Um, he, he refused to do it. Really? Yeah. Anthony you, never played with his thumb at all. You have not heard. If you find it, if you can wow. find it, please. Did he always play? Did he always play with a pick at least, or he used a pick? Um, yeah, a pick in his fingers. But but I think for the love of money is is with a did it. Did it. You can hear the pick. Yeah. For so, you though, what is your what is your preferred weapon of choice? Your thumb? The what two I fingers? do is um, I grow my I grow my nail just long enough so that I can switch between if I need a little extra percussive sound, I'll, I'll hit it with the nail. And yeah. uh, actually that came from an article I read about Chuck Rainey said he did the same thing. So he would you you'd use the meat the meaty fleshy part of your finger, like, you know, and get that big fat Jamerson sound. But if you wanted to have a little more percussive, like a pick sound, uh, instead of using a pick, I just use my fingernails. And what is your preferred weapon as far as your, your bass collections? And um, one of the basses, like all the songs you named, it's, it's my, uh, it was the predecessor to my signature Yamaha bass, but it's called a motion bass. And it's just, um, we, we had like this bass that they had made for me. And then this box that I used to carry around and it, it has, it was like an EQ box that would shave the mid frequencies. And um, that's, that's been the bass I've played on, you know, like countless Anita Baker record. I mean, everything, you know, all those mm-hmm. tunes you name change the world, you get lucky and, 
And so that's my, my five string. It's, it's the equivalent to my five string signature, but it's like a prototype. What was your, okay. So, you know, there's over 2000 credits you have and at least 200 of those songs are like life changing songs. So, you know, I, I won't even pick your brain about each and every song, but what was the first song that you recalled out of your comfort zone that you played on? Like, there's a difference between Barry White's It's Ecstasy When You Lay Next to Me and Footloose by Kenny Loggins. So, like, or was it just a gradual thing where it's like, oh, a rock gig today or or a pop gig or a yacht rock gig or (laughs) a folk gig? But what, what was the first, like, okay, this is out of out of my normal my, my out of my normal realm of client clientele well well one of the one of the most challenging records uh, was uh wayne shorter joyrider and mm, okay. uh, patrice russian played on that robin ford i think was on guitar and it's one of those things like wayne's writing it doesn't it doesn't take into account like how the stuff lays under your fingers it just <laughs> it's just these notes that are that are in in a uniquely random order that are that are amazing but you really i mean i remember all of us having our heads buried in the music thinking and i think somebody said hey would it be cool to take this home for a couple of days and then come back and shed it and wow. come back you know and they were kind of because you don't want to you you want to make it sound like you own it when you when you're playing the music you know um the song footloose was was a baseline that we had i had the the benefit of playing on the road every day like for months with Kenny we'd go practice the tune and by the time we recorded it that was like one take you know but it was cool um early on with Hubert Laws there was an album called Family yes that's that's my yeah, joint Bobby Lyle Chick Corea was on there and that was his sister was singing Deborah yeah, I think saying that Deborah yeah. sang and and that that was a uh, one of the more kind of challenging I, I wrote a song that I played with like the electric bass and piccolo where it played the melody together it was, it was kind of a little bit of a chop buster. It's called Wildfire. And, bass uh, and so, the piccolo together. Yeah, so piccolo and Tandem? bass. Yeah, that's what I'm trying to Or separate tracks. Um, it, it, and the, the, the separate tracks, you know. Oh, whew. I was like, yeah. wait a minute. That's <laughs> some Stanley George <laughs> shit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. And so uh, it, it, was, uh, it was one of those that, you know, required a little bit of shedding before going in the studio. Um, but for the most part, you go in the studio like sight unseen and they, you know, they either uh, throw this music in front of you or play a demo like, you know, one of the many ways to, to articulate what you, they want you to play and, and you go from there. I was going to ask, are there things that you need for your session that you have to have? You know, normally it's it's not a one of the uh, the last things we did. And, and we uh, I got to congratulate John Batiste because we did the music for Soul and we were in Capitol. Yes, yeah. congratulations yeah. to you both. Yeah, yeah and, and oh. we, were, we were over there uh, January 2020, like the, like the first week of January 2020, we were in Capitol Studio A. And uh, that was interesting because he, uh, I had my upright bass, I had my electric upright, my electric bass, and we kind of auditioned all three and we ended up using my, my, uh, my upright bass, you know, the, the real wood bass engineer got a fantastic sound out of it and uh i was i was just uh so so proud to see him walk away with the with the statue you know that was amazing yeah that was awesome so you always bring awesome. a choice with you at every session of yeah, if, if i can a lot of times they if they just say you know they may just say bring the electric bass you know um and uh Bunch of like for for baby face you know the probably not going to be a lot of upright playing 
Right. <laughs> right. All right. So when you're when you're doing sessions, for instance, with all right, let's let's say through the fire. Do you mostly do you have good relationships with the producer that chooses you for the session, or is it yes. just all right? So wh- what was it like working with um? I don't hear all stories uh, about uh, uh, RF uh, Martin. It's hard to pronounce his name. Arif Martin. Yeah, yeah Arif Martin. Yeah. Um, because you know Shaka's album was such. The I Feel For You album was such a landmark album, which was sitting somewhere between uh, the past and the future that was to come. You know, them uh, sort of exploring new sounds and new new technology. Were you on that entire record or were you just on Through the Fire? Let's see, I was on a few uh, album, a few cuts on that. I'd, I'd have to look. But um, Through the Fire was actually produced by, written and produced by David Foster. And uh, my buddy, okay. who I share a studio with, Tom Keane, wrote it uh, as co-writer on that song. Okay. That was a cool song because David Foster, years before, he had, he, he came up with this um, kind of like a solo album um, of all instrumentals. And that tune mm. was actually on it. Um, you, I don't know if you wow. heard the metal version. Oh, I didn't know that. Okay, that I'll hook you up. Fire second go round. Okay. Yeah, and and so I was familiar with the tune, loved the tune, and um, so again, you know, to get to play on it, I was, I had a, my heart was already connected to it. And then David was a friend, and so we were we were having a great time in the studio. You know, John Robinson on drums, um, I think Mike Landau on guitar, David on keys, and. Um, so the tune kind of played itself like that. Every song is unique, as we we all know. Like a song like "Tears in Heaven," I always say that 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 I didn't play that song; it played me because mm. I, I knew Connor Clapton, beautiful little boy, and right. and just uh, the the emotion of going in the studio and recording that, knowing what it was all about. You know, I mean, I don't even remember the notes I played, and you know, like I say, the the song kind of just plays you. you mm-hmm. know? Are there two versions of? Is there a studio version of Tears in Heaven and the unplugged right. version, or is yes. it just one definitive? Yeah, there's okay. two. Uh, the uh, studio version is on a, a soundtrack called Rush. Yes. Okay. Yeah, that was Jason, a Jennifer Jason Lee joint. Jason, yeah. 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 And you did okay. both versions. Were you on the unplugged yes. one too? Right? Yeah. Yeah. So you so played with Ferroni. Okay, I see. Yes, yeah. So. When I I think when I first met you, I'm sure that we met before, but the first time I really got to talk to you. We were in a carousel, and it was one of the most surreal gigs of my life because it was, at the time, you were playing with Toto, correct? Right. Yeah. Yeah, so it was, it was Toto, Diana Ross. Right. The Roots. Mm? Prince. <laughs> wow. <laughs> right. Um, and The Roots? Oh, oh, and Los Lobos, and... Uh, yeah. What's this? The one, the one fest in London or something? They'd be real. Random. No, it was, it was, um, it was okay. What's, what's, what's the event? What's the festival in Rotterdam? Um, it's the North Sea Jazz Festival. Okay, ah. it was like because Carousel is sort of the, occupied the by uh, connected, yeah, yeah, the Netherlands. Like, it's it's the North Sea Jazz Festival before Carousel. I was right. going to act like I knew where that was. Y'all kept saying it, I was, <laughs> and. Is it is it slightly between like South America and it's somewhere in the middle of nowhere? Right. It's not Europe and it's not South America. It's like that, you know, like it's like way below Cuba. Okay, so right. they brown, they brown there. 
They're wow. yeah, they're kind of brown. Jose James was on that. Yeah, there were yes, there was a lot, but it just <laughs> that was the one time because we were there for I think four days before the gig even started. Like I thought it was right. weird that we all came out early. Yeah, me too. To to hang, I, I've never done that. Usually, I, I get there the the day of the gig, do the gig, and I'm <laughs> out. I can hit it. And then yeah. I'm like, wow, one you'll you'll never catch me uh swimming or in the beach but yet here i am swimming <laughs> in the beach like and i'm talking to t- you know to toto and and you know like <laughs> everyone everyone's there so yeah wait a minute was journey also on that gig as well they may have been on that gig as well wow. yes I th- okay so i'll bet you i could find the poster or something of that gig because i try to save you know all the yeah all the information, but I mean, it was like all these people, you know, I sat next to Diana Ross on the flight back home. <laughs> it was crazy. Really? Yeah. So we, we got to talk. It was, it was incredible. Yeah, it was a very, it was a very surreal, surreal gig. Even like the fact that Prince was so accessible. It was like, wow, this, Prince this was kind of weird. Everybody stayed up to see Prince's. I mean, it was unbelievable. Prince, Prince was so killing that he did an additional two hours. That oh. was the roots time. Oh, oh. So, <laughs> <laughs> so, because you know, on Prince's it, side of the stage, there's like sixty thousand people. One more song, one more song, <laughs> and then on our side of the stage, it was like three hundred people. So, <laughs> I mean, and, and we if just told the to promoter, go "What promoter is going to get mad at him?" You know what I'm saying? Right. <laughs> we told the promoter, uh, "What do you want us to do?" Because Prince then took our time. And he's just like, uh, "Yeah, just do the seat and go home." So literally, like, <laughs> we did. Wow, we did wow. three songs. <laughs> We did the next movement. You got me the scene. It's like, all right, good night, people. And you literally are like a golf clap. Like, that's a, that's a promoter's dream. Like, Prince will not get off the stage. You know, right? I mean, it was unbelievable, no, dude. I wasn't. We were over there watching him, and then it was like, oh shit, we gotta go on stage. Like, and I'm ask, I'm literally asking him backstage, like, are you you doing another encore? Because I gotta run to the other stage. And all right, I'm gonna do one more. I was like, okay, well, there's no more root show, but uh, but when you're in that situation. Like especially with with legacy bands and whatnot, how often, like with Toto, I'm certain that you're not just doing it for that gig. But do they hire you for like a year duration, or is it just like for this particular tour? And yeah, that we that particular tour was um, they they actually called me and said, you know, Mike Picaro, who's who was the bass player. Um, is suffering with ALS and what we would like to do is go on tour and raise some money to help him with his medical expenses. So, so this, this was the tour where it was just from the heart, you know, and and these guys, I know 30 years and, and those are all my boys. And so we, we got together and um, the proceed from the tour was going to his family to help him because he, at that point he was, um, you know, he was off the circuit. Well, okay. Speaking of like Toto, can you, can you explain the sort of uh, the somewhat str- stranglehold that they had on just a particular sound hmm. and sonic? Like, I know I mean, I'm not insulting when I say like, oh, Yacht Rock or whatever, because like I'm a really big fan of all that Michael Master, Yamaha DX7, right? fretless bass sound. Like, I like, you know, easy yeah. match. Like, I love that Yacht Rock stuff. But... I mean, at the time when you're doing it, when you're doing it in real time, like between that period of like 81 and 87, when this new sort of L.A. glossy sound sort of takes over, like, are you realizing that sonically it's 
a little bit different than what was kind of like with with the, with the grid of the 70s sound like did you notice a change yeah. or yeah i mean it it and and they got they got beat up for oh they're so slick and <laughs> they they got beat up in the beginning but now it's like in hindsight i love the shit out that sound so it's like yeah it's almost like revisionist history like yeah i always loved africa and, <laughs> right. yeah, and exactly. all those things right but like what were they were they the the who was the who was the and it, it's always like some up for debate like who's technically the first yacht rock smooth la sound like people say like whoever the the, the producer was of a uh, captain and Tennille's love will keep us together like many will cite that as the the first right. moment in 1973 where it's suddenly like the neil sadaka does it and then right but you know at the time when you're gigging in la like what was the basic perception of like the 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 Picaro guys like oh they some badass motherfuckers or like is absolutely it and you know and 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 back in the day too you like you had a and m studios you know where the carpenters you know and and there were there were all these like very very lush kind of sounding records I, it's funny i was over there the other day we were doing a uh mary clayton tiny desk concert nice and, uh, yeah and it was it was it was really cool but every time i go in there it just takes me back because I mean I was in there. I did Johnny, I, I did Johnny Mathis with a fifty-piece orchestra. I did Dion Warwick. A lot of people in there, uh, you know Don Henley. I mean, so many. You, they say the ten thousand hours. Like like we we all have ten thousand hours in a lot of studios, <laughs> you know. Right. And uh, the Toto the Toto project. If you think about it, every one of those guys, has such a powerful um, individual voice on their instrument. I'm mean, Steve Picaro. Um, my man wrote, he wrote Human Nature from Michael Jackson. Mm -hmm. And you can hear in those chords, that's Steve Picaro, you know, one guy plays like that. David Page, same thing, very powerful personality. And, and those guys were, were like all of us, you know, students of music. They studied, they studied Sly and, and everything, you know. So when they went in the studio, they, those were the standards that they kept. Jeff Picaro, um, you know, these, these are some bad, they're LA finest basically, you know? And so they, they went in and you listen to, you listen to Africa now and, and those songs like uh, Hold the Line. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and so it was fun for me because as soon as, uh, as soon as they asked me to play, you know, it was like playing a top 40 band. <laughs> you played right. all these great songs and Rosanna and, and um, you know, I, I couldn't ever really figure out why they were getting such a bad rap. Oh, they're too slick. And, you know, I mean, what you getting, punished for for trying to have a good sound and come up with some good tunes you know all right y'all you know what season it is tis the season for spring breaking and planning our summer travel and if you're like me you're already in your airbnb app trying to find which spot is right for you now listen while i'm looking to spend all this money what i'm not doing is thinking about making money with airbnb See, you gotta change your mind state Make the money while you're spending the money. How, you say, Laia, do I make the money? Well, you host at your house. And I know what you're thinking. I mean, my whole house? Uh, well, no, you don't have to do your whole house. I mean, you could do a room or, you know, do the whole house. So make some money while you're spending some money this summer. I'm trying to tell you, your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash host. 
In the 1980s, Frank Farian was riding high as a successful German music producer, but he was bored. German pop was formulaic, dull, and oh so white. Frank had bigger dreams, American dreams. He wanted to create the kind of music that would rival larger-than-life artists like Michael Jackson or Run DMC. So he assembled a hip-hop duo, two once-in-a-lifetime talents who were charismatic, full of sex appeal, and phenomenal dancers. The only problem? One very important element was missing, but Frank knew just how to fix that. Wondery's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's biggest controversies. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when their adoring fans learned about the infamous lip syncing, their downfall was swift and brutal. With exclusive interviews from frontman Fab Morvan and his producers Frank Varian and Ingrid Segui, this podcast takes a fresh look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Follow Blame It on the Fame wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free by joining Wondery+. Plus. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Okay, so oftentimes if I get asked to do a gig, nine times out of ten I'll ask, like, well, is, if I think they're hiring me because of a certain sound that I had, then I'll recommend them. Well, you should go to this studio because this is where I recorded this particular record. Da 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 da, and th- this Power is where you'll get the sound. Sony. Yeah, right. You'll get the sound that you want. Um, how much control do you have over, like the, the sound and the texture of what you want, or you just got to trust the engineer and the producer, and that's it. Well, you know, um, Al Schmidt, who we just lost, um, worked yeah. at Capitol a lot, and and we. The Warner Brothers used to have a studio and that we we did when we first um, started foreplay. The the first real foreplay album was was a Bob James album called Grand Piano Canyon. <laughs> and uh, uh-huh. that was when he, he called me, Harvey, Lee, Lee Rittenauer. And uh, actually, Harvey Mason and Lee Rittenauer both recommended me when he asked about who should I get on bass, you know. So the four of us got in that quartet. There's a song called Restoration. I call that the first foreplay song. It's on that that album. And Al Schmidt recorded that. And I used to take that recording around to other studios, Shay and, and uh, Sunset Sound, Ocean Way, and say, guys, my bass sounds like this, you know. <laughs> oh, yeah. Okay. Because you know how, like, your drum, you could play in 10 different studios and it's, it'll sound like 10 different guys, you know. And I can't ever figure out, like, how does the same instrument translate so differently in different studios you know so whenever possible yeah I, I, i'll recommend and one of my favorites uh spent tons of time in was um ocean way studio oh okay. okay we did the first uh well we did so much stuff there but first foreplay record but we used to record there with lionel richie we did uh we did kenny loggins love will follow i mean tons of records i did uh, one of the things i'm most proud of is um we did uh, a song called If You Think You're Lonely Now, Bobby Womack. Yeah, I was oh. going to say, yes, yes. <laughs> you, you were on the Monster song, yeah. So the Ocean Way Studio, and it's and funny as I, all these tunes I could remember, I could kind of just remember being there. It's almost like the day. And um, so that being one of my favorites, you know, when I went to go do my solo album, you know, where did I go? Ocean Way, which is now called United uh, Studio. Um, oh. Back in the Have day, we recorded there, Steve. Yeah, yeah, thought- yeah. We did podcasts there. Yeah, we did. Oh, yeah, 
like three of the studios he dropped so far. A and M, yeah. Yeah. Okay. And Capital. Those are the big ones, Capital, mm-hmm. Record Plant. I have a question, Nathan. At any point in your career, did you mess with key bass? You know, um, playing bass on on a keyboard. <laughs> you know, there was a there was a oh sorry. There was a time in the Algero days that he had a couple tunes that had key bass on. Uh like uh <laughs> Boogie Down? Yeah, don't, like don't, Boogie don't, Down. Don't. There was one I can't right quite remember the name, but it was it, it had this like really funky key bass. And so uh so the I got the dark in the roof. Yeah, the, the roof Anyone garden. Want to know that thing in the dark thing. Thing. Right. <laughs> yeah, that's my jam with me too. <laughs> <laughs> I loved him so much. Was, uh, I, I loved him so I much. I loved him so much. I couldn't even like him, but from, I'm trying to get better now. From Milwaukee, you know. Yes, he's, yes. He used to call me Nathan Meese. Nathan Meese. Nathan Meese. Wait, Nathan, can I ask, have you ever worked with Tommy LaPuma? Yes, many, many, many times. Okay. Have you have you worked with him between, like, the era that you work with him was at least between 75 and 85? Yes. Okay. Tommy LaPuma has such, he has such a distinct sound. He has a very distinct sound with his production for all of his stuff, for his Al Jarreau stuff, right. for any record that he produces, that I'm almost under the impression that whatever studio he used, he kept it on one setting and never ever adjusted because <laughs> right. it's to me it's it's so like even with the stuff that he did with like brenda russell and oh right. my god there's a sound that he gets in his bass and his fender roads where yes. i instantly know that's a tommy lapuma tommy well fr- first of all tommy tommy lapuma would start every session off with lunch at beach <laughs> you know so like he, he would like he was more concerned about taking everybody to lunch and getting the best bottle of wine in the place. And then once you got that, then you were cool. <laughs> Let's go make some music. Wait, is this another Quincy uh, fake out? <laughs> Do you know Quincy's theory about this? No. So Quincy Quincy does the same thing. He wants the sessions late at night, and he wants the guys to have the itis and to be a little tipsy um, <laughs> and somewhat sleepy. And then he'll start usually at 1 in the morning because he knows that, uh, any so argument? Your alpha not, state, your brain is in the. Yeah, yeah. yeah you're the not thinking. State, you're, yeah. you're tired and all that stuff. So he he purposely will track important things between like one and six in the morning because well, like you're not as alert and you won't challenge him on something and <laughs> overthink right. and overplay. I've had many sunrise services with Quincy, by the way. <laughs> and 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 Al Jarreau for that matter. But you know, it's it, it's funny because. Um, Stevie is the king, you know. He he called. He, he well, just show up late. <laughs> like, you know, he his time. He marches to a different. I mean, we recorded the last record. Um, it was me, Ricky Lawson, and him in the studio, and Ricky we got Lawson. to take at four a.m. And I remember thinking, "Oh man, I got I got a ten a.m. with Jay Graydon on something." <laughs> Somebody man, he doesn't care. Nope. And um, but but yet you know, getting back to Tommy, he he was that guy that. Um, he wasn't the kind of producer that told you, "Hey, I need an A flat on the third bar of the, of the, you know, of the of the bridge," you know. But he 
he just knew how to put people together. And, and to this day, Anita Baker will tell you that the record she did with him is, is sonically the, her favorite record. Giving you the best that I got? No, it was... Um, was it Rhythm of Love? Or? I think it's Rhythm of Love. I'll, I'll have to check. It was the one with I Apologize okay. and uh, Body and Soul. It was the one that came out yes. in 94. I think you, Fonte went on record and saying that was his favorite. <laughs> it's not my favorite I think my favorite was Compositions but yeah, Compositions Rhythm of Love I was, was going to say we we had the most fun on Compositions and Fairy Tales being one of my favorite tunes yes. 11 yes. minutes long yes. and <laughs> Gaines is going acting a fool at the end and Ferroni <laughs> you know what it is okay well one her her entire discography is not available for streaming I know so I really I, I can't even lay judgment. I mean, I have a cassette somewhere, but it's like I haven't touched my cassettes in eons. So, <laughs> you know, yeah. for me, I'm just like, no, rapture, nothing else. But you're well, you're, I mean, Songstress was was the was our first time in the studio together. And, and that the song Angel. You're on Songstress. Oh, yeah. That's you on wow. Angel. Yeah. Of course you are. Oh my gosh. Okay. <laughs> Nathan, please. Come on, From day one, you know, it's too uh, much. I love it. Wow. Yeah. Um, what was her producer, uh, the guy, uh, Michael J. Powell, what was he like? Because I've always, you know, oh, read Jeffrey, stuff about yeah. him. Michael J. Yeah, Powell, Jeff- the great, gentle giant and, and the greatest, I mean, one of the, the greatest producers ever. I, we speak we speak from time to time. And, and mm-hmm. um, again, a producer's producer. That's really, really soft-spoken, but knew what he knew what he needed and got the best out of everybody, you know, and, and put some great cats together, you know. All right, so without naming names, because I know there's always two sides to a coin. (laughs) Right. Have you ever been in a situation where it's kind of like amateur hour with the producer, like he didn't know what he was doing or (laughs) not too communicative with (laughs) knowing what they wanted? Every now and then you get those guys that you say, how did they get to be the producer for this important project, you know? And um, one of the things those kind of producers do, and, and I have to give it to their credit, is they'll call they'll call the cats, you know. And, and one guy who will remain nameless, but we were in, and, and Jeff Picaro was playing drums. And after every take, he would look to Jeff, and, and Jeff would either say yay or nay. That it either was mm-hmm. the take or wasn't, you know. And that's how you would determine if you do another take again. But, I mean, um, for the most part, and a lot of people say, oh, have there been some some session that you've hated, but for the most part, I've, I've enjoyed all of them and, and been blessed with like some really talented, gifted producers. How, how do you know if a session is bad? Like if you have to spend more than an hour on a particular song or. Yeah. If you you're know. beating up on a song and next thing you know, everybody's looking up at their watch and you don't have a take and like you keep trying and then the takes just get worse. And I mean, if for, for, for whatever reason, maybe it wasn't in the song, but, uh, you know, even, even up till, uh, recently, you know, sometimes people bring a song in and, and somebody will say, Oh man, this isn't really a great song, but they'll have, like, if you got filling gains on keys, he's going to make <laughs> the first different color. <laughs> yeah, right. he's gonna, and, the, and I was telling David Foster the other day, I'll never forget. And of course, Quincy, Quincy's the, you know, one of the top guys ever. Uh, but we were doing, uh, Patty Austin, James Ingram, how do you keep the music playing? Mm. 
Drop it. Drop it, Nathan. Drop it. Come on now. But but we were in there and we don't have just like Quincy said, well, we don't have an intro for this. And and anybody and David Foster literally, he has his legs closed and he says, crossed, and he goes, What about this? And he plays the intro exactly what you hear on the record. Oh, Boom. God. Wow. Just that's yes. when speaking I which, the genius. Yes. Yes. David Foster, Lord. Thank you. Okay. Speaking of which, and I'm sorry, Fonte, I feel like I'm about to steal your question, but I got to <laughs> ask. Okay. <laughs> the intro to After the Dance. Oh, that's my question. Oh, Foreplay After mm-hmm. the Dance. Yeah. Well, DeBarge. Yes. The. I feel like that that intro to me is the probably the first thing that I think of if I start thinking of like smooth jazz FM. Yes, yes. Like it just (laughs) reeks of it. It's such an earworm, it never leaves you. So it's not like I have an opinion on it. It's not like, oh, that's my favorite, or I hate that intro. But it's like it lives in my head rent free. That was my favorite. Who came up with that intro? And (laughs) Bob, Why? Because I can't get rid Bob of Bob James. Bob James. You know what? And that's the same thing. That's what he he just said. How about you know he 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 always writes everything out and he says stand by and he he writes this. He says how about this? And you play it. And now I I'll go on record saying that's probably my favorite intro. <laughs> you know? Wow. Of course. Wow. You can't you know, escape it. It's too only iconic. second to minute by minute. Yes. By Michael McDonald. Man, right. Let's wait, talk wait, about wait. it. Yeah. Wait, wait, before yeah. that, Nathan, can you tell the story of Nathan East and Bob James? Because, like, how did that marriage come together? And when did y'all know it was like, right? Like, just y'all know. Well, we, we knew we had something special on Bob's record, and he was an A&R. He was an executive at Warner Brothers Records when we did his solo album. So he oh, said, wow. guys, I could, um, um, I could propose this to the, to the Warner Brothers. He said, I think we could get a deal right away. He came back. He and and you know what? They didn't even have to hear a demo or anything. They said signed. And when wow. we did our first session, we showed up at Ocean Way, and and there was Mo Austin, Michael Austin, Lenny Warnaker. I mean, the big, wow. the big the Warner wigs at Warner yeah. Brothers. But they beat us to the studio. They were excited. <laughs> that excited. Dang. How was Mo Austin as an executive, man? I've heard like a lot of stories oh. about him, but how was he? The, you know, the last of the Mohicans. You know, he he was really. Record when you look up record executive, there's his picture right there, you know. Mm. And uh, but that that was like uh, our first, you know, and it's 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 here. It is 1990, 1991, and we go in the studio, and and when Bob wrote that intro, I just said, "Bro," and but of course, like he wrote, you know, that crazy arrangement of uh, "Feel Like Making Love," mm. and uh, matter of fact, he he had a hit with that instrumentally. And Roberta Flack had a hit with it. I mean, it was like a hit <laughs> yeah, at the twice same the time hit, right. on two different formats. Right, right. And uh, so it's been, you know, and, and believe it or not, we we're having our thirtieth anniversary right now. You know, yeah. In my mind, my child mind, you're like the best of friends, and y'all eat uh, together. Y'all have Sunday dinner. That's oh no, we're thought. we're we're brothers. Okay. We're we right. brothers with a, without a doubt from another mother, and and uh, you know we we've had a chance to been go around the world together and and just have a you know, have the best time. And so he's, he's actually, um, he, he and Greg are actually godfathers to my son, Noah, who plays keys. Wow. <laughs> and now, up, man? I was going to ask you about Noah, but I wait till we talk me about and Noah. Uh, we we want to do a, a record cause we, we've been playing a couple of gigs over the weekend. We played in Omaha for uh, Walter Scott Jr.'s 90th birthday celebration. And we, we had the best time ever. And, um, you know, David Foster was there and all. 
all the guys and um and he's he's turned into one of my favorite musicians man wow. the the foreplay uh catalog man that for me um like the the between the sheets album and the elixir album mm. those came out wow. when i was in high school and wow. so i used to do my homework to those records and like <laughs> chant was my joint elixir um i love those joints and um y'all like i, I noticed like lee, lee written he was on those records and then right. the guitarist y'all switched what was the reason for the change in personnel yeah i think after three records lee lee really got um um into the more of executive branch of the of the record record business you know? so ah, he, okay he and one of his friends and he, he and dave grusin and and grp grp he, yeah larry yeah, rosen he, he started getting uh busy with kind of doing doing records on the executive level level and so that takes up so much time too yeah y'all record the joint the um the phil collins the why can't it wait till morning man y'all tell me about that session man i love it you know song. we sent that over to <laughs> phil um i called phil's manager and uh you know it's great when these guys are your friends too but i called phil's manager and uh, uh secretary answers the phone she said uh she said, what, what's this regarding? I said, as far as regarding foreplay, they said, well, I don't know if he can help you with that, but um, I'll get But I mean, he, we sent, uh, and we wanted to do something obscure. So we, we kind of found this song that wasn't necessarily like it wasn't a number one pop hit, 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 but yeah. I can't wait till morning. It was a little obscure. And we, we sent him over and again, Bob came up with this, this brilliant arrangement. We sent it over. And uh, he went into his studio, put the uh, vocal on. When he sent it back, we all sat in the studio and cried. You know, it was just like, <laughs> what is this? Man, nah, that's a gorgeous song, man. Yeah. There was a singer song. that, um, there was a, a singer that Lee uh, used to work with a lot, uh, Eric Tag. Did, did you ever yes. do any sessions with him? Er yes. Dude, what was he like, man? Because he's like one of my favorite singers ever, but he's so low key. I don't even know if he's still making music now. Yeah, no, he's but the he's dude's a like monster. Yeah, I mean, he's, he sang like Stevie Wonder too, you know. Yes, yes, real Stevie, big, big Stevie influence. He was from uh, he was from Texas. Mm -hmm. Really great guy. He, and and he was in Lee's band. I remember when I Lee's band was one of the first ones I was in. Uh, first oh, okay. time I went to Japan was with Lee, and you know Eric was in those bands. You know, the, that's the thing I, I love about music. There's so many great people out there that a lot of people haven't even heard of. But, um, you know, this... this it, it was something about the way y'all pull stuff out of people. We were talking about that earlier, about the Michael McDonald record. And I was like, the the way that Michael was singing on that record but just felt different. And, <laughs> and well, Michael's different. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we know that. Michael's yes. different. Yes, you know, if yeah. I could, if, if I could have a voice, it, it would be his. You know, and then uh, I really enjoyed his his uh, Questlove Supreme podcast too. He was he, he's so he's so down. He sang on my first solo album. We did a version of Moon Dance. You know, like a big band version. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He okay. came in and crushed this record. Yeah, I was. What's the process of picking the songs to reinvent? Because I was just listening to a song you did with Bob. It was uh oh and Vince Gill, um oh uh, uh crazy 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 Look out. yeah from crazy anybody knew that well, I, I was singing this is Quest Love Supreme Nick we Denise. did our homework <laughs> you guys are unbelievable but yeah how do y'all decide which songs to reinvent which in your mind are you thinking this is how I always heard it or man if I could only touch it this is well, what and I would there's a story and if you can apply it and, uh, and if you can apply that answer to your arrangement to Sir Duke. I would appreciate that because Man, we listen. still haven't forgive you. <laughs> we still have not forgiven you for that. 
Well, no, it, it's and, some genius and, shit. To this day, we we've studied it so much that it never leaves know, us. First of all, you can't like you can't touch a Stevie song. Like if you're doing a Stevie song, it's 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 already the Bible, you know. So you do that, but then for some weird reason, like right in the middle of the studio, I said, well, "What if we when we got to this this part, we just oh, changed no. like every four bars?" <laughs> Wait, let me let me explain to put it in perspective. <laughs> yeah, now I feel like I gotta go listen to it because I forgot well, about. Yeah, that. like you you know he he's taking he's taking songs you know and sort of putting a new spin on it. So the the song that he really did that to was is, there's an arrangement of Sir Duke. Of which that horn part is very intricate, just as is. Anyway. And what he decided to do was to just modulate, in, in some sort of non-sequitur way, modulate the key into keys that aren't supposed to fit. So in other words, instead of the regular, in the same key, he goes to another key. And then... And then another key. So you you basically have to transpose every four bars a new key that's not related to what you did before. But, it, and then you did mad other Stevie songs. So it's like there's there's no rhyme or reason. Literally, it's it's kind of random, just like pulling them out of the air and saying, Oh, well, that works. And then okay, we gotta get back. So what will we end? Which one, you know, so the first one you know is the original. The last one has to lead you back. And then the other two, heaven knows where they, where they- I'll, I'll put it this way. I'll put it this way. Hip hop heads, uh if if you're familiar with uh uh most Yasin Bey's uh Casa Bay song. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, yes. And, yeah. and the constant mm-hmm. switching. Oh, what's- yeah, dun- this this has nothing on that song. And oh. we I mean we practiced Casa Bay like maybe as a a whole song an hour straight, but this one wow. part of that Stevie Wonder song, oh God. That <laughs> that was almost like a two hour nightmare thing. Oh that's which, too I'm, funny, man. Sorry about I'm, that guy. I'm glad we survived it. I'm glad <laughs> it, was, <laughs> it was fun hitting it with you. No rhyme or reason. There was no song that y'all picked and y'all were like, yeah, no, nah, this is this is why do you, you know no, it, well, Stevie and and I realized that every everything I've ever recorded I I had Stevie um, I've done like at least two or three Stevie covers yes. we did Overjoyed which came out of uh, I do these uh, Sting Rainforest benefits we do them at Carnegie Hall every year mm-hmm. and uh, Stevie was on one and I was just fooling with the changes of uh, Overjoyed on bass it's kind of like at rehearsal when nothing was happening and I'm kind of trying to figure them out and uh, next thing you know, I hear harmonica. And now he's playing. And now I look up there, Sting, Elton John, Bonnie Raitt. They're all just standing there looking, like looking on. And I'm going, oh, Lord. And I'm, as I'm learning the changes, Stevie is playing. And we get to the end. And, uh, you know, they all give, they all start clapping. And then Stevie comes over and says, if you ever record that, call me. I want to play on it. So that was my wow. next question. That, some of the responses from these revisions, can you share, like, what have been those? Like, I wish I would have done that, Nathan. I wish you would have suggested that. Well, I mean, if, if Stevie offers to play on your record, you have to do it. I'm not right, 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 right. Man, I could have had Stevie on my record, you know. So he came and blessed the record. And, and the way we, what we did was um, um, we, we recorded a track. And then when I played on his record, I brought the track over. And then he, you know, two in the morning, he, put, he popped it on one take. See you later. <laughs> wow. Because he wrote it. Really? All right, we um, a former uh, Questlove Supreme guest that we just had was El DeBarge. Oh, um, 
I know your name is on the In a Special Way album, but do you recall anything from that DeBarge session? Do you know what songs you played on? Are you on Stay With Me? Are you on Time Roll Reveal? Are you on A Dream? You know... I'm, I'm embarrassed. This is this dude. This man, is don't be embarrassed. Nah, Many records you done been yeah. on. It's called I'm greatness. It's called greatness, Nathan. <laughs> You're on one of those songs. There's an album called. Um, did he do an album called Gemini? He yes, did Gemini. he did. Yes. Yep. Do you know? Yeah. Because that that one we did the whole thing, and there there are a few songs that really like stand out in my mind, like um, uh, Broken Dreams. Okay. And uh, uh, Turned Away. I mean, check check out these tunes. These and um, these are. Elder Barge at his finest writing style, you know, mm-hmm. and um, and and I'd have to look on the um, on the other one because back in those days, you were just ripping and running in and out of Motown studios and these studios, and it literally everything was like a machine, you know. And I know Freddie Washington's on on uh, at least well, yeah, Freddie. The re- <laughs> yeah, the reason why I asked was because the other two names on bass were already Freddie Washington. Right. But then James Jamerson Jr. And Jamerson and Jr. I didn't I didn't realize that James Jamerson Jr. had a career as a a professional basis on records, you know. I didn't right. know that. So I was trying he, to figure out like what songs were yours and what songs were Yeah, he he was getting called and, and sometimes it's it's a little unfair because the way they listed they just they would just have bass and they'd have three names, you know, so you wouldn't really know who played what unless you were very familiar with their, their style. But um, speaking of James Jamerson, at that very studio that, that we used to record at Motown, um, one day somebody asked me to replace a Jamerson part. And um, that's the only really? time I've ever refused to play a part because I am not going to replace James Jamerson. Please. Are you the type of, uh, can you shapeshift your, your sound? So if I say like, okay, I want to go for something more pastoral sounding, and you're yes. like, okay, well, I know exactly how to approximate that sound, and da, absolutely, da, da, da. <clears throat> it's okay. like, um, you know, it's, it's like draw bars on the Hammond. You know, you can go from church to to jazz, <laughs> you know, and mm-hmm. and everything in between, you know. But but on the bass, if I want to go for the jackal sound, I I go for the back pickup, you know, and which is what he used to do. And then of course I have I have Fender jazz basses, Yamaha. I mean, I have. I have a lot of bases that we we can just get different sounds on. So uh, yeah, that's and that's one of the fun things to do. You know, you listen to the song, figure out, you know, what what does this song call for? Oh, I was going to ask, who were some of your favorite players? Like, who were the guys that you learned from and that you learned from as you know when you were younger? Well, and some of the guys that you still pick up stuff from now. Yeah, I mean, the, the guys I mentioned and and early on, it was like Verdine White from Earth Wind. You know, yes. Rocco from Tower of Power, James Jamerson, Chuck Rainey. Ron Carter, Charlie mm. Mingus. I mean, it was like <laughs> just the best. So many, yeah, the only the best. So many great guys: Anthony Jackson, uh, Marcus, Marcus uh, Miller, yeah, Abe Laboriel. You know, Jocko, of course. <laughs> so, excluding excluding your foreplay guys, who would you pick in your your starting five lineup? Like career retrospective, who's on drums? Wow, who's on drums? And you play with the best, dead or alive? Yeah, dead or alive. Who who did you gel with the? Like, what drummer brought brought the 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 best out of you? I'll I'll tell you. I have to say Jeffrey Picaro. 
Um, if you listen to a song called Lady Love Me by George Benson, um, Reef Martin produced it. Lady Is that on 2020? Love Me. Um, I think so. Oh, 85, I yes. Know I know the song, yes. Okay. You know the song? Yes. Listen to the fade. And and what you hear in me and Jeff, it sounds like two kids playing in a sandbox. <laughs> I mean, it was like, it it was, and, and he was just... Every time we walked in the studio and saw each other, we just started smiling. I mean, we did we did everything from Maurice White's solo album, BG's, Barbara Streisand. Uh, mm-hmm. um, we did Randy Newman, I Love LA, all that kind of Dude. stuff. Dude. Oh, wow. <laughs> oh, wow. Wait, Okay, I was going to ask you next. We love it. In doing, in doing uh, <laughs> why do I feel like you're more or less referring to What's-Her-Name's video of that as opposed to the actual song? Right, right. <laughs> Oh wait, Fonte. No, uh, 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 Chris Jenner made a. Oh she, no, yeah. no, no, she, she, oh. She, 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 oh, you're allergic to that name. Okay. No, no, oh, she, the original. I love L.A. Oh, right, but I, I'm only asking because that's one of my favorite Randy Newman albums ever. <laughs> and real emotional girl is like one of my all time favorite songs. Uh, oh, and I'm I was, an idiot. Wow. That's not David Lee Roth, the original. I'm an idiot. Oh. Yeah, no, people, no, Randy, Randy was first. Um, yeah, but yeah, what were your memories of doing that, the Randy Newman album? You know, the memories was basically that was, that was the, the, the entire Toto band, you know, mm-hmm. David okay. Page, Lukather, um, Lenny Castro was playing percussion, mm-hmm. uh, Steve Picaro, you know, I mean, it was like Jeff Picaro, it was, it was literally, and, and those guys were the go-to guys for, for everybody, you know, when, when Eric Clapton came to record his first, uh, you know, one of his album, it's called Behind the Sun in L.A., the Warner Brothers guys said, okay, use our guys. And there you go again, Jeff, Carl, Phil and Gaines, Luke Ather, uh, Michael O'Marty. And I mean, it was like the, the, the session aces of that time. So that was the Randy Newman record was just amazing because we'd sit around the piano and he'd show us the tunes mm-hmm. and then we'd just start go cutting. All right, y'all, you know what season it is. Tis the season for spring breaking and planning our summer travel. And if you're like me, you're already in your Airbnb app trying to find which spot is right for you. Now, listen, while I'm looking to spend all this money, what I'm not doing is thinking about making money with Airbnb. See, you got to change your mind state. Make the money while you're spending the money. How, you say, Laia, do I make the money? Well, you host at your house. And I know what you're thinking. I mean, my whole house? Uh, well, no, you don't have to do your whole house. I mean, you could do a room or, you know, do the whole house. So make some money while you're spending some money this summer. I'm trying to tell you, your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash host. In the 1980s, Frank Farian was riding high as a successful German music producer, but he was bored. German pop was formulaic, dull, and oh so white. Frank had bigger dreams, American dreams. He wanted to create the kind of music that would rival larger-than-life artists like Michael Jackson or Run DMC. So he assembled a hip-hop duo, two once-in-a-lifetime talents who were charismatic, full of sex appeal, and phenomenal dancers. The only problem? One very important element was missing, but Frank knew just how to fix that. Wondery's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's biggest controversies. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when their adoring fans learned about the infamous lip syncing, 
their downfall was swift and brutal. With exclusive interviews from frontman Fab Morvan and his producers Frank Varian and Ingrid Segui, this podcast takes a fresh look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Follow Blame It on the Fame wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free by joining Wondery Plus. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. There's, there's two guys that I often see their names on credits, but they're not in the total circle because, of course, the, the, page, the page cats. But right. um, did you work a lot with uh, uh, like Bill Wolfer or Michael Bodkick? Michael Bod Boddicker. Boddicker, Boddicker, yes. At all? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. And then Michael Boddicker was another one of those names. You'd look on all these records, and there's Michael Boddicker, mm-hmm. Quincy Jones, George Benson, mm-hmm. Give Me the Night. There's Michael Boddicker, you know, like all these records. And I and I did uh, several several things with him, including the Academy Awards. Yeah, he was, okay. he was down. We were down underneath the stage. Wait a minute, guys. I, I knew... I know this is going to be an episode. We always have like a post-mortem thing where we finish an episode and then we start getting mad because we forgot. Oh, I forgot to ask. Oh, we forgot to ask. It's not a choice with Nathan. That's going to happen regardless. I believe I was trying to sit here and figure out like what is the ultimate signature baseball performance you've given on a record? I'm praying this is you. Are you playing bass on Dennis Edwards' Don't Look Any Further? Yes, sir. Yes, what? indeed. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you won, man. You won. Okay, you win. Yes. What do we have for Yes. <laughs> I can't believe that. That's the one thing I did. Yes. That's the one thing I didn't do, do my homework. I was just we like, wait a minute. We do not get paid in full without that song. Wow. Yeah. Dude, I totally forgot. I was like, I know he wow. has a signature song that is like a tattoo that's worth forgetting about. You know what? That the is fact such. That you know that is just incredible to me. This is perfect. Fitting the pieces. <laughs> we had Saida. This is a great. musicologist. Yeah. <laughs> but but it's su- it's such an iconic baseline that did did you write that baseline or was it just like like it's such a bass led thing? Did you get writer's credit for it or did they tell you this is what you're yeah. playing? The baseline is the hook of that song. Basically. It's a combination, and, and and that's one of my favorite lines. It's a combination of what was already. It was basically already there. Um, and so I was, I was uh, the executioner <laughs> of that line, you know. And, wow. Uh, so but, did you, how many times did you work with, because you mentioned Dennis Lambert. Did you work with him at all after that or? Yeah, lots. Yeah. And uh, Dennis, I mean, you know, it was, um, it was a very fertile period. I mean, we're talking, you know, I'm, I'm just thankful that we were born at a time hmm. like the seventies, eighties, nineties, where music was just, it was so fertile. I mean, there was so much music. Now, I had a uh, somebody sent me a picture of a piano with two keys on it the other day, and then the captain was <laughs> so they used to write you write a two now. <laughs> you know, it's like, much. and and like you almost get penalized for having too many chords now. You know, where where this you had lines, bass lines, you had chords, you, you had melodies, and um, and so uh, you know what? Another one of those bass lines that uh, it was the Elder Barge. Uh, 
That's what I'm saying. A dream. Okay, that is you. Yeah. Okay, good. <laughs> right. Yeah, but, but all of these. I mean, and I, and I'll never forget. You know, being in the studio that day, knowing that you know this one is special, very special. Okay, I was going to ask. You win. <laughs> all right, good, Steve. Ask the question. Hit it. It's your question. He never answered it. The dream lineup. We only got to the drummer. We didn't get to the other. Okay. Four. Way to go, Steve. Way to referee. Way to go. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Greg Phelan Gaines. Okay. Of That's your keyboard player. That's your keyboard player. So Who's your drums. guitarist? We got guitarist. I have to say, and this is, you're going to, you're going to, you may, you may laugh at this one, but Pat Matheny is my favorite guitar player. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. I wouldn't. I wouldn't I'm not I mad. Doubt that. Wait a minute. Uh, Spring isn't here. Not even. Uh, how many? Uh, how many Matheny albums are you on? None. You're not okay. I'm not okay. on a single Matheny. That's 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 my bucket list. Yeah. That really? is okay. Wow. Story. Um, really? Yep. We uh we played a we played a concert for uh we we had this thing at, at Dodger Stadium. It was Elton John and Eric Clapton and, and Matheny came. And Steve and I quoted one of the songs that Steve's playing on. It's in seven four, and Steve and we started playing that during a solo. And Pat went crazy. You know, it was like <laughs> you know, fifty thousand people out there. We saw Pat giving his wife a high five when we played this tune. You know, but you know, Pat, he's he's just he's just a consummate musician. And I've always he's always been one of the guys on my bucket list to play with, you know, to record with. We've played together, kind of jammed up at his place on the Upper West Side. But uh, I've never had the pleasure of being on one of his records. Of course, he George Benson. I mean, and and then, you know, as bands go, you know, if if you look at, um, you know, we lost four play lost uh, Chuck Loeb, who's stars. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. um, the guy could do no wrong by me. He could play funk, jazz, rock, and uh, and on top of all that, he was the sweetest guy. So you know, Chuck, I think about him every day. When did he pass? When did Chuck pass? Twenty seventeen. Yeah, okay. Nathan, can I ask what musicians or music you and Noah talk about? What is what does he put you on to since he is like an amazing musician himself? Well, you know, he he's amazing cuz well, of course, everybody's, you know, on onto Jacob Collier, so he's like yeah. he's like phenom of phenoms, but we you know, we we go with Herbie and uh he I look at his, you know, cuz he goes to the um not only does he go to University of California at Berkeley, but he goes to YouTube University. And so well, yeah, started, you started him there. And right? he studies, you know, Billy Preston, yeah. who go, you wow. know, and uh, um, people like uh, uh, Billy and and uh, Herbie. Uh, you know, he, he's kind of all over the map, you know, with with everything. And and he love we we do uh, one of our favorite songs to play, "Sunny Side of the Street." You know, which is a sixty-year-old song that that uh, yeah. Louis Armstrong sang back in the day. So he he knows everything. But then we we love Al Jarreau and um, you know, kind of kind of A to Z. I mean, he's just a, a musical musical guy. Yeah, by the looks of YouTube, it's like you had a baby music genius on your hands. So that's why I was. <laughs> well, you know, I, he has perfect pitch, and and he not only does he, he's not one of these guys that like, if you look, you're going to hear a million Olympic chops, you know, but he, he, he's got heart and soul and it's the choices, you know, it's the, it's the, it's what you don't play. It's the space you leave 
that makes makes it special, you know. And that's what I I'd like to see a lot of the younger guys uh, kind of understanding, because you know now I just you, you start scrolling and it's like you just hear everything, every A to Z in the first bar. Right, uh, Steve, do you want to ask the question or should I go? Uh, well, actually, I'm 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 curious about. You said you played at Live Aid uh, in Philly. Um, was that with Phil Collins? That or was with Kenny Collins? Loggins. Oh, with Kenny Loggins. Oh, yeah. Uh, okay. Yeah, you're, you're also very well known for playing with Clapton 19, Lott, 1985, and, and um, so yeah, Kenny Lawton put a set at uh, in Philly at Live Aid. So yeah, okay. he um, did. Yeah, but you're, I guess you're 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 um, implying that my obsession with Easy Lover and your association with with Phil. How many Phil Collins? Um, <laughs> well, well, that, that was a Philip Bailey album that that song was on. Yeah, you know, it was Philip and and my relationship with Philip is what got me on the gig. Phil Phil Collins, he was going to be the producer, and Philip said, "Hey, I want to bring I want to bring Nate Nate East over to London with me." And so, yeah, you know, so we we went to London, recorded that in um, town. And you co-wrote that song, correct? Yeah, we wrote that song. It was the last song that we recorded. It was like after two weeks of recording, and Philip said, "Man, we still need like an undeniable single." And uh, we went to went over the piano, and about twenty minutes later, that came out. Wow! Just twenty minutes later. <laughs> yeah, and and what it was was we kind of like had the, we had all the parts, and um, we said let's make a demo of the track, and then tomorrow we'll listen to the demo and and come back. And so we made the demo. The next morning we put it up, and George Massenberg was the engineer. He recorded. Um, we played it, and everybody, hey. And everybody like it? What's wrong with that? Well, let's go with that. And then I heard Phil Collins kind of singing these Choosy Lover was the name, you know, was was the lyric mm-hmm. he was singing. But as he was singing, um, I said, man, his voice sounds so I said, man, why don't you guys just do it as a duet? Okay. Mm. <laughs> really? Yeah. Nathan East, everyone. It was it was a Phil Bailey record, you know, but then you, you could hear like Phil's voice. And at, at that particular week, the song Against All Odds was number one, Phil's first number mm-hmm. one, and it was like number one on the charts. So it was like, this is a no-brainer. The two of them as a duet, and man, <laughs> I used to hear it on like three radio stations at once. It's still one of the greatest. So that, that was, I love that song. That was that that allowed me to kind of solidify my uh, my standing with the folks. I bought them a house, and uh, finally they said, you know, because you know your parents were saying. Yeah, but you should have something to fall back on. <laughs> Get a real job, right? <laughs> Get a real job. <laughs> yeah, your dad had a whole job. I still can't repeat arrow something. Blah 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 blah. blah. So I knew the. Yeah, he was in the aerospace business. Design engineer, aircraft. Oh, okay. Yeah, he designed the uh, F F sixteen swept wings and the C five A tail. You know, and he used to always bring these rocket uh, pictures home of these rockets and silos. So that's where we got our kind of. Our, we have four pilots in the family. I fly. My my brother's fly. So. My dad was a rocket scientist. Gracious. <laughs> is, is there um, is there a session or a song that you had to pass on that wound up becoming like like did you get the call first for like we are the world or something like that and you had to pass on it because you were already doing a gig somewhere. Well, fortunately, I I can't tell that story because because. No is one of the words that I have not been able to say, and I I don't turn down anything but my collar. <laughs> no, 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 no. That's Let's not talk possible. about it. That's not possible. Oh. That's 
That's not possible. So I should take all the gigs. All right, thank you. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, I, I learned early on, like my accountant said, nobody's following you around with a pension plan, and we got to, you know, the, the career. Right. Well, yeah, a, a studio musician's it. career is four years, so we got to figure out what to do with your money. And he told me that in 1980, you know. So, wow. So, you know, you, you're always thinking, you know, it, is this is this it? Am I in the peak? And is it gonna? Am I gonna be on the other side? You know, they say the the uh, the four stages of a musician's career is uh, who's Nathan East? Get mm -hmm. me a get me Nathan East. Get me a young Nathan East. Who's Nathan East? Who is Nathan East? Wow! <laughs> oh, no, can you yeah. repeat That's that one brilliant. more time? Yes, nah, please. I've read that before. Yeah, <laughs> one more time. Say it again. So, who's Nathan East? Get me Nathan East. Get me a young Nathan East. Ooh, Who's Nathan East? <laughs> I hate that really? David Foster told me that. That's that brilliant. I've read that in one of my voiceover books. They, they say the same thing. The, for the real? fright of that has kept me going for uh, 40 years now. <laughs> wow. I, I've never heard it put that way. And now that, that totally... Don't don't you start feeling in your the other part. The other part they say the only other part I've heard of that same saying only other variation I've heard is the additional stage of get me Nathan East at any price. So like that's kind of before. Right. <laughs> yeah, you know I mean that's, I like that. It's, well, yeah. Yeah, to this day, my brothers call me and they always go and as soon as they answer, they get me a young Nathan East. You know they always <laughs> you know, but but it, it's good to kind of have a little bit of that fear because especially back in the day, there was always the new guy. You know, like. In, in the 80s, you know, like especially on guitar, you know, that you, you had you had like Larry Carlton and then you had Lee Rittenauer and all these guys coming in and Lukather. And so there was always like this this heavy hitter waiting in the wings, you know, to, to be the next guy. You know, so uh, not, now I think uh, we can we can rest a little easier because there's not a million studios and a million gigs going on like there were back then. Well, who who in your in your eyes was uh kind of uh who who do you admire of the well i guess like young lions to you are, are now established musicians but i mean if i'm talking to mid 90s nathan east like who who were the musicians that were coming up that you were like okay i mess with them or you know like who's do you feel that the future is safe with yeah i mean when because I remember, um, you know, first hearing Esperanza Spalding, and she was one of these, like she was young, new newcomer, and then next thing you know, she had album of the year, you know, <laughs> the Grammys. And then, um, again, there's people like Jacob Collier and and uh, Justin Lee Schultz now that are that I think are very, very promising. That I I feel comfortable leaving them with the with the torch, you know, because they they seem to be putting in some serious time and, and they're, they're, they're quite a few. And, and, and I'm, I'm excited about my son Noah too, because I, I think he's, he's becoming a, a student of, of music and really like a sponge, you know, just absorbing um, everybody from Keith Jarrett to, to Bill Evans to, you know, to Herbie and uh, everybody in between. He's playing now he's playing Hammond organ B3. And so he's listening to a lot of the, a lot of the cats there, Jimmy Smith, Joey D. Smith, yeah. It's crazy. All right, before we wind up, I just I, I'm still thinking of the the the, the post mortem talk. It's no way. It's, you cannot avoid it. It's nah, I just okay. Um, are you? 
I know you play with the Pointer Sisters. Are you on I'm So Excited? I'm on I'm So Excited. Okay. I play the Pointer Sisters are my cousins by marriage. Uh, no, they're not. <laughs> oh, so uh, we actually uh, we actually re-recorded all the hits, and they asked me to produce it because a lot of times, you know, like Pepsi will say, "Hey, we want to use." I'm so excited, and and the record label will say, "Okay, give us a the main, master and give us <laughs> something crazy." Drill. And so they they hired me to produce it. So it was so easy because then I just called Greg and John Barnes and all the guys that played on the original. And we went in and recre- recreated all those songs Oh wow! and, uh, and used them on, um, you know, now when you see them on a Pepsi commercial, those are the right. ones and they're, they're benefiting from it, which is great. Wow. Oh, so, yeah. So and that's what Prince that. did, you know? Yeah. You can re-record. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Because you, you know, the, the label owns the masters and, you know, that's when Prince put slave on his right, <laughs> right. forehead and, and he just went in and recut him. But sometimes it backfires. Like, you know, before, thank thank you, Sylvia Room, for finally releasing the, the Heat Wave discography for streaming because I don't know if I could have t- taken another, like, Boogie Nights 2020. Like, <laughs> you know, some acts like re recording it, not really quite nailing it the way that, you know, okay. in some cases it doesn't work, but in this case it does work. Um, another dance classic of yours. Is that your base work on Womack and Womack's Baby, I'm Scared of You? I'm on Womack and Womack, and I'd have to I'd have to look and remember if I could, uh, the particular tune. So let me look that up, and I'll get back to you on that one. That's a great problem to have. I, I, fully, I fully accept it. Like I, I fully say, accept. start stacking them on, you know, after after a Wait few 10,000 tunes. It's just it's crazy. Yo, Fonte. <laughs> He's on another iconic hip hop bass sample. Which one? So you you're 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 playing on uh Flack and Bryson's uh Born to Love album, correct? Oh my correct. god. They're, they're 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 duet record. Yeah. Yeah, Second Childhood, Primo. Boom boom bang 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 boom boom. Boom boom. Yeah. Boom. You know what? You reminded me of stuff that I that I completely and and you know this happens in Japan because they they pay attention to everything and sometimes I'm walking down the street and they'll come up with a big armful of vinyl of records that you completely forgot that you played on you know wow. and they went to the side right. and, and everything but uh see that's and that's what I I wish that you know the 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 powers that be and and the red tape the red tape people and the lawyers and whatnot um, would realize that the beauty of sampling is that cats like us will see what gets sampled. And now not only will we purchase the, the Roberta Flack and people Bryson album, but then we're going to read the credits and see who played on it. And then purchase everything that they played yeah. on, and so on, and so it just leads further down, down the rabbit hole. P.S. Mas- I, I would like to tell the masses who are listening to this: there's an app for that, and it's called Deeper. Just saying, black owned, go get it. Deeper, What's it called again? Deeper. It's an app called Deeper. Like if you find a song you like, the bass player, you touch the bass player's name, and you can see everything that the bass player did. Wow. Okay. Deeper. Yep. Deeper. Yep. And um, well, you, you know, it's 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 like um, Aaron Schwartz did with Reddit. He he wanted to make available legal documents 
that usually people that are in MIT studying, they have to pay 35 bucks to get a legal thing. So, so he kind of, he started making those things available and that's where he got in trouble. He got sued by the government, but oh. it's, it's one of those things where you, are we gonna, are we gonna keep it going moving forward so that people can know what, what happened before, you know, cause we don't want them to forget about Natalie Cole and, you know, Ella Fitzgerald, and you just don't want, uh, you know, Billie Holiday. And, and you, you want our, our youth to really have access to that. You know, so if, if we put too many restrictions, and, and again, you know, they'll, they'll figure out a way to monetize and, and get it. But I, I think to, to kind of put so many restrictions on everything, it's just, it's just rough. You know. Okay, one more thing. Okay, give me three more. <laughs> Because <laughs> there's too many, man. Because um, I'd be remiss, and I, I, I would hate Damn, how it. How long if, was Greg Filler Games? I'm trying to remember. Because oh no, this, it was a two parter. <laughs> two parter. That's right. I'm, I'm gonna nab this. I'm gonna, I'm, I'm gonna nip this in the hole. But you've also worked uh, with Narda Michael Walden, of course, doing his magic streak with Aretha and Whitney and whatnot. That's you on saving all my love for you. I yes, hope. dude. That. Okay, what kind of bass are you playing on, on saving all my life for you? Because it's that white bass right behind, it's, it's this white bass right behind me. It's a BB three thousand Yamaha bass. Wow! <laughs> and uh, it's uh, Gene Page wrote. Listen, he, Gene Page wrote all those those notes too. Uh, Michael Masser was producing. We were at Devonshire Studios. We, you know, that the greatest love of all. This right, right behind me. You okay, Amir? But my my question about saving all my love for you, though, and it, is that a five string bass? It's five string bass. Okay, that explains everything. Because the thing is, is that even though I didn't, I didn't. I mean, when 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 that album came out, I was I was fourteen years old. But it was um, it was in the eighties. Yeah, eighty five. And so for me, though, when you get to the last bridge, because the night is the night, I'm feeling all right. You played in such a low register <laughs> that I was like, "There's no, there's no bass that can actually pay." Like he's playing below uh, <laughs> uh, uh, an E, right? You were, and I never heard that. Like normally, someone would would go to the upper register to play it, right? But you went low with it, and okay, you played on a five string, and, uh, and I was. I was actually shocked that because that was the first kind of some of the first five string records I was playing on. And, and I was kind of saying, as, is this really going to be cool? Or am I going to get away with this? Because <laughs> you know, it was low. <laughs> that was a risk. Right. <laughs> it was unusual to hear because I just never heard a, a, a bass go that low before. Yeah. And OK. You know, I, I have to say. And, and by the way, congratulations. You did an, an amazing job uh, as musical director for the Oscars. And um, thank I, you. I appreciate Flowers. that you have, you know, to me, you brought the show into <laughs> into the, the current state. And listen, let's talk about something it. beyond 1950. <laughs> um, it, no, but I'm, I'm going to tell you, it seemed like on paper, it just seems easy. Like, oh, Questlove DJed it. But man, oh. the only reason why I know those three letters, AFM. Yes, of course, we have an AFM here at The Tonight Show and we right. deal with the rigmarole of, of whatever but yo they do not play 
in Los Angeles, and I thought everything was going to be gravy, and then the AFM rep came and was like, he wanted to know every song I was playing, and I guess the deal they made was like, basically, um, if if these are uh, AFM uh, uh, orchestra members, then you have to pay a certain rate for this and that, so... It's it's oh really the the night before I had to redo and clear a whole bunch of songs because you know I, I plan on just playing like movie themes and John yeah. Williams scores and all like do the normal thing and then the AFM guy was like nope they they're AFM union members we got to pay them all like oh. we we were trying to find our way to safety in a pandemic and then like the last minute the guy's like no you must play you must pay all 70 members of the people who played the theme to rocky in order for you to play the song on the air. Wow. and i was like no we're not doing that so i had to get super super creative and was just like okay i'm just gonna play regular songs are most young musicians in the union no. um, well those those particular things that you mentioned are going to be a lot of the string players that you know had had recorded those Right, uh, that's what I was thinking. And a lot of them aren't even living. Right, so, so that's why I'm like, like, do the new generation, do they know Where that money going? The money goes to the AFM. Some so. of them, are, yeah. Uh. But but it's <laughs> it's great that if if it's possible for it to get to the people that recorded yeah, they're a state. deal. But but they, yeah, they, they will uh, they will come and, and, and check on you now. And you had access to the tracks, right? I mean, you... Yeah, well, for, uh, for as... Um, as was great, by the way. I, t- I took a risk, and I was just like, I, I, I hit up Stevie and was just like, "Can I, can I get the master, please?" And you know, wow, I had to explain like what I wanted to do and all that stuff. And when he heard it, one, I didn't know that Dean Parks was playing um, acoustic guitar on that. And Dean what's Parks even funnier man. was, you think you're bad, Stevie didn't know that, and so he was sort <laughs> of like, "Yo, how did you make this? It's, it's like a country song." And I was like. No, that's that's just Dean Parks. I just left you and Dean Parks singing alone. He's he felt like we redid it and did a whole nother arrangement to it. And I'm like, no, I just I took what was there and just accented some things and that sort of thing. But that's literally, you know, wow. from songs in the it key was of life. Really, it was really a beautiful uh, version. And and how great is it that you can get the uh, original master from Stevie and and be able to do that? You know, that's that, that's impressive. <laughs> that's that's the perk. That's the perk of the job. I enjoy that. And and I um, I was with Dean Parks over the weekend, and uh, it's we we were playing. Um, we went to a club and sat in, and I said, "Man, it's not every day we get to hear Dean Parks stretch out like this." You know, I mean, he was he brought it, and uh, here he is. You know, still doing it after all these years. But uh, he's he, he's I another really dream guest it. of mine. Yeah, yeah. He's I I got to meet him uh, two years ago at the, at the Oscars, and he's such a such a cool cat. Yeah, he's very cool. And uh, but, but yeah, the the uh, the original opening. I'm going. Wait a second. I think Amir got the track. Oh, this is incredible. <laughs> Hashtag flex. Yes. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, like, I got lucky. Talk with about it. working your magic. No, it was really great. Thank you. Thank you. Yo, I I know there's like 49 other songs that I I can nerd out on and albums that you've played on, but you know the the whole thing is that you you you're the 
you're the magic touch and and i really appreciate you for coming on the show and, oh, man, and talking I, to us i and, was so excited i last night i kept looking at my watch oh man okay it's only uh 12 more hours <laughs> i'm so excited to come because listen i mean you've You've had everybody. Come on, Michelle Obama. <laughs> no, man. Michelle Obama and now Nathan East. Yeah, Nathan you know, East. I'm excited about it. But wait, now now that Laia mentioned it, yo, you should really, because when I'm closing my eyes, I thought I was talking to Donnie Simpson for half a second. <laughs> you you really have, you you have a, a future in voiceover work, man. He already oh, doing that, it. But really have a future, oh. like, that should be your your. Your your pivot, bread and butter, well, man. You, it's a lot of fun, you know. Uh, I was friends with Don LaFontaine, who was the yes, who was the guy. Yes, the, his yes. Family and I are still very dear and very close. But he, he's a he, you have great pipes, you know. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> he, he, he had the voice of God, you know. Yeah. yeah. Well, I thank you very much for doing the show, and um, uh, thank you, know. you guys. And uh, nah, thanks, man. This was yes, a lot of fun. Like, thank you for the music, bro. What you're doing, I was. Um, it's it's very relevant. It's not irrelevant. <laughs> very much so. And uh, well, thank you yeah, very thanks, much. Thanks for everything you do, and um, congratulations on everything. Disney collaboration, and you know, thank you. And everything you're we, doing. We're looking forward to the next generation of East. Shout out to Noah. Okay, Let's now, yes. right? <laughs> yeah, shout yeah. out to Noah. Yeah. And, uh, well, listen, well, uh, it's been a joy, a pleasure, and an honor. And uh, let's uh, let's keep it going. Absolutely. Well, you heard it from the horse's mouth, ladies and gentlemen. That was Nathan East. And on behalf of Fontelo, Laie, and Chip Steve, my name is Questlove, and this is Questlove Supreme. And we'll see you on the next go-round, the next episode of Questlove Supreme. All right? Yo, what's up? This is Fonte. Make sure you keep up with us on Instagram at QLS and let us know what you think and who should be next to sit down with us. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast. All right? Peace. Love Supreme is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Listen to the highly anticipated 100th episode of Tank and Jay Valentine's R&B Money Podcast with artist Chris Brown. Even working with you from Carrie Hilson, Adonis, mm-hmm. back in the day, I was 15, 14 doing that album. So like I said, I was in school like, yeah. okay, this is how you do it. This is how you make a song. There's a verse, a pre-chorus, and then a hook. I didn't know none of that. You learned I, that over a summer, bro. That's what I, it felt like. That's what it felt like. Listen to R&B Money on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. And like always, we'll be here every week. You'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics. Nothing is off the table. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.